So, Russ, we have some uh, news this week. Yes, we the, do. The, Visual we are news. the first. We are the first episode of our, uh, I guess, our second year. Because I'm, I'm guessing last week's ended the first. I don't know. We have the second episode of our second year, and we have a new logo, as listeners may have um, noticed already. Yeah, check um, it out. Yeah, this was um, designed by uh, Fast Signs in Staten Island, New York. If anybody wants likes it and wants to uh, get something um, done, that's uh, my brother. My brother's place, Richard Vizzuto, so ask for him. And um, if you want to get a design done, you should um, – our des- the guy who designed our um, l- new logo, which I think is very cool with the pink uh, adult music logo over the brick wall, that was um, a designer named Efren Aquino. And uh, ask for him if um, – and, and you'll get a great design. That's uh, – Fast signs in Staten Island, New York. And also, we're getting business cards, me and you, uh, on their way. Um, and uh, I feel like uh, like Steve Martin in The Jerk. I feel like I'm somebody now. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's, yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah. A big improvement. The neon really pops. And, yeah, uh, I think it looks cool. Looks great. We'll probably get comments about it. Actually, we already had one nice comment. I showed it to a friend, and he said it's uh, it, it kind of underlines the fun aspect of the podcast. I thought that was really a nice thing to say. It was kind of a, what yeah. we were going for. I hope so. You know, yeah. You know. Anyway, it looks great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that. And, yeah, uh, thanks for that, everybody at Fast Signs in Staten Island, Fast and especially Science. you, Efren. Thank you very much. And especially yeah. my brother, Richard, of course. Too. Yeah, Richard, thanks. And thanks for listening yeah. to us uh, Yeah, all the time. I think he's uh, he's he's got a... He, he wrote to me the other day. He told me he's got a... Uh, I think for Christmas he got a... Um, um, a, a Bluetooth speaker. Now, I have to. I have to tell you, my family are. They like music enough, but they're not the most kind of music loving people. Like I, I, I guess hogged the entire music gene. You know, because no. I, I, I'm just fanatical about it, and everybody else just kind of, you know, yeah, it makes me happy. That's it. I do other yeah. things too, <laughs> right, but I'm right. definitely not like that. So he's kind. He's been listening to the music not only us but the music we've been recommending which is pretty surprising for me because uh i don't know i'm kind of impressed i hope he likes what we're recommending and help you like it too listeners that's right yeah because i gotta tell you this week uh in the classical field eh, i have um um you know often i'll have three out of three that i'll really like this week i have mm, well really one out of three but i didn't hate the other two i just had a few they didn't really rock my world hey you like, picked them <laughs> i did yeah but i didn't listen to them first but even right. so i kind of like that because i want to hear it i don't really have time and i'm like okay i'm gonna listen to this and yeah. i want to hear this and um in one case i figured oh this is going to be just great and it really was just okay mm. but we'll get to that all right well so yeah. here we are episode 51 and we are adult music we're, we're almost at my age that's How, right you know you know coming up to your, on your age soon yeah don't remind yeah. me oh <laughs> Yeah, feel the bones. No uh, so, yeah, as you can see you. by that popping new neon logo, we are Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Before we get into the music, every week we generally feature three new classical or recent classical releases, three jazz. Uh, sometimes there's a crossover of uh, other influences, which there will be tonight. 
tell you that up front. Oh, next and, week too. Wait till you see what I got next week. Oh, all yeah. right. Okay. So before we get into the classical section, I want to remind our listeners that in the episode description, you find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on our preferred streaming platform, Deezer. You can also follow us there uh, on the podcast uh, and see the playlists all in one spot. That's uh, Adult Music Podcast as a username there. Now, if you don't see the description of list or links on, uh, or the hyperlinks aren't active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, come over to our host site, Podbean, and everything is easy to follow there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get in the listings in the musical categories on the browsing on each service, and that helps us increase our audience, which we'd appreciate. Uh, above and beyond that, if you have any comments, questions, or want to get in touch with us directly, our uh, email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I personally think that people are going to be wowed by our new uh, logo, and they're going to put us in all those like sites because we, we look good. Yeah, we'll see what happens yeah. next week. Yeah. We'll find that out. Flashy new icon. Yeah. That's all I'm thinking about now. Anyway. So I don't know. Well, are we ready to go here or what? We Let's go to the uh, first classical recording. Oh, I should say um, too. Yeah. Just one oh. thing before we get into that. Uh, yeah. If you do want to listen to the music before you listen to the podcast, oh, yeah. uh, I'm pretty good about getting the uh, playlist up on um, Monday. So just uh, within... Uh, 24 hours of the podcast itself going up, the musical selections for the next episode, uh, everything that's available on streaming is up. So if you want to listen to it early as we're listening to it, uh, please find it on Deezer. Yeah. Okay. So let's just go right into it. Um, I always try to kind of get some sort of an early music um, beginning for this because I kind of, in my younger years, I used to listen to like baroque music in the morning and just kind of set a good mood for the rest of the day yeah so, I, agree with that. Uh, I kind of like to uh you know it's it's been a lifelong thing now really since uh my first job after uh, college and um you know when i was in my 20s you know working on classical music radio at wbur in boston which is now all uh news apparently oh, they, what they're, a bummer. The NPR, they're one of the two npr stations there uh-huh. that was my first my first job I was behind the boards, not in front of them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me talk in the microphone. And I'm sure you can figure out why. But <laughs> not in Boston. No although, although, given some of the people that are on NPR, I mean, that's true. <laughs> now, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know, they they should just let anyone on. Hey, you, talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, first recording this week is, in fact, it's not a Baroque. Rec- well. It's hard to say what it is. It's really more from the classical, classical era, era, right? Yeah. Maybe uh, the Gallant era, which kind of came between the uh, the Baroque and classical. Like classical had more um, kind of um, you know lines and like more complicated, like sort of vertical harmony as opposed to all you know horizontal the way um, you know Bach had it. And the Gallant style kind of went for something a little more superficial, which is pretty on the surface, and it really didn't wasn't deep at all. And this guy Franz. Jo- Josef Alman, 
uh, who is our first composer tonight, um, might be in that category. Let's uh, do an investigation here. This album is called Chamber Music in the Abbey of St. Florian, or it would be Sankt Florian since it's in Austria. And the ensemble playing this music is, appropriately enough, the Ars Antiqua Austria, um, conducted by Gunnar Letzbor, who also plays violin. And this is on the Challenge Classics label from the Netherlands. All right, let me give you some background. Franz Josef Almann. Now, one of the reasons I picked this was um, it's another composer I had from the past that I really knew nothing about. And mm -hmm. uh, his story sounded interesting. Uh, he worked at an abbey, as we said, and uh, that always interests me too. The whole – I have this thing for the, the monastic life. I mean, I've never – you know, I've done like Buddhist meditation in temples here in Japan, but I've never actually been in a, a Christian abbey to live that life. I'd be curious to do that, though. Taking vows of silence and making fruit cakes with high alcohol content and stuff like that. Well, there's that. I think they, you know, or drinking beer during Lent. I think that'd be my favorite part. Yeah, Those are the European ones, anyway. That would work. But uh, yeah, the in the in, you know in the the Catholic religion I grew up in, and mm. still acknowledge. Okay, so I'm still classical music really kept me in that, you know, right. when I was kind of doing other things. But anyway, so Alman, um, he was an Austrian composer. So so were Mozart and Haydn, by the way. So these were really, you know, the big names of this era. Um, and uh, he was born in Treismauer in um, Treismauer in uh, Austria. In 1728. So remember, Mozart was born in 1756. Haydn was born around 1732. So he's really around Haydn's generation. Mm. But Haydn lived for a long time and Mozart did not. Okay. Uh, and he studied in Vienna where everybody studied. And for some reason, we still don't know. Um, he relocated to the uh, Sankt Florian um, Abbey in 1753 at the age of 25. Hmm. Now, and he stayed there for the rest of his life. Um, he became Reagan's quarry, which I guess is the choral director. And a year after that, he was ordained into the priesthood. Oh, maybe those Remained uh, Austrian, in the women, Austrian women yeah. scared, him, scared him into the abbey or something. Maybe. Although, Haydn's story, it's not similar to this, but Haydn also, he was hired by the Esterhaza family and stayed with them for most of his life. And then the last 10 years, he started traveling around Europe. His music had become very famous by that time. Um, so it's kind of a, I guess it was sort of a thing mm -hmm. then. And also the religious life was also something as well that uh, people considered. So he remained in the monastery service until he died in 1797. So that means that he was in the monastery service for Mozart's entire life. And Mozart died in 1791. Mm. All right. Now, Beethoven, by the way, was born in 1770. So um, Beethoven's very early works may have been heard by Almond too, if he actually had access to all this music in the monastery. I don't know what he did, whether he was cloistered or not. Okay, some of his works, he wrote a requiem mass for the deaths of each prelate he served. So there are 12 of them. <laughs> Okay. Mm. That's a lot of requiem masses. Yeah. He wrote mass settings, motets, litanies, offertories, oratorios, as you would imagine, living in an abbey. And uh, he wrote also Singspiele, which are kind of operas that are kind of with spoken sort of – they're almost like – the. it's almost like musical theater, basically. It's mm -hmm. like you're, you're kind of sing-talking, and then there's an aria, a song that you would sing. So it's, um, it's kind of like that era's version of uh, – 
a Broadway musical, I guess. Right. He's got yeah. a little sense of humor in some of the things he does, too. Yeah. Uh, here, yeah. Yeah, and he wrote those things in the vernacular, it says here, which is kind of interesting because most of his stuff would be, I guess, in Latin uh, if you're doing mass settings. Okay, so his chamber music, which is what this is a an album of, uh, is scattered throughout Europe, and the archives of the St. Florian Monastery have only a handful of chamber works, and I'm guessing this is them, okay, on this album. Mm-hmm. The, 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 note, the booklet notes in the CD don't really give too much information on each one which I'll kind of comment on as we go. Um, In his music, one of the interesting things about his music is that violas have equal status with the violins. Um, So it's not like total equality because the, uh, the, the, uh, they're not cellos, they're violones. They kind of sound sort of like the Baroque era sort of um, viola da gamba type uh, instrument. Mm -hmm. Um, They're kind of, you know, the tone isn't really focused. It kind of s- tends to spread, and therefore you tend to play it very um, s- uh, slowly, which is the case on this album. Um, th- this album, this this music, though, could have easily been played on m- more modern instruments or more classical instruments, let's say, like a traditional string quartet. I really don't know what the uh, historical sort of um, status of that would be regarding mm. his music, but uh, this was taken up by an ensemble that specializes in these older instruments. So that's what we've got. Okay, so it's not quite total equality among all instruments in dialogue as Haydn would have it because Haydn string quartets are famous for each of the voices, the two violins, the viola and cello, each having an individual voice and adding to a sort of musical conversation. And um, in those days too, people, professionals wouldn't play these. You would play these at home with your friends and family. This is what people did before mass media okay even before radio you just kind of played an instrument yep and uh with your pals or you know your family or whatever it was more participatory it was more participatory i do miss that actually. yes yeah now now though the, the problem now though is that we we tend to think of wow they must have been really good musicians well in some cases probably yeah. but, yes uh, and no probably just like uh yeah. Any other time, but, yeah, but the thing is, those those Haydn quartets and the most they were playable mostly by uh, right. people at home. Uh, now we get really difficult to play mm. uh, works uh, that are specifically written for professionals who have all this training. Uh, some of these works, especially, and that started with Beethoven. Right, he ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, he ushered something new in. Let's just say that. Okay, all right. Um, it says here, we can detect in Almond's music a preference for melodic lines reminiscent of the folk music that was practiced in the region above the river Enns, which I guess would uh, make sense to any Austrian listeners we might have, or people in that general area of the world. Uh, during this time, the significance and specific quality of folk music was first knowingly perceived and appreciated. Indeed, you can hear a lot of it in Mozart's finales. He uses a lot of these folk-like Themes, not folk themes. We didn't get to actually transcribing folk music for classical music until really Bartok and Vaughan Williams in the early 20th century. But it was inter- folk music was interesting to these people, and they sort of incorporated its elements, if not like in any scholarly way, because it was music of the people, and it was immediately appealing, and that mm. is the case here too. Okay, Almond, like Haydn, was relatively free to experiment as he wanted. Um, and this is a composer whose music is really waiting to be rediscovered. It's pretty good. Although, 
it's probably a lot better than this recording uh, puts across. Now, I don't want to damn the rec- the performances or the recording with faint praise because I think it's all good, but I think we could we could uh, hear something a little slicker than this that delves into the music um, more deeply. Um, this is another one of those examples of a composer whose music doesn't have a performing tradition, so we're hearing it for the first time, and uh, I found this recording to be very careful. Mm. Um, let's see. The first piece is called Parthia in G major for five instruments, two violins, two violas, and a violone, which I guess would be sort of like a gamba-type instrument. All right, so despite the classical era of these recordings, they're played with, these works are played with no vibrato on older instruments, and we're probably hearing gut strings as well. Um, it sounds like a Baroque recording on period instruments, really. Um, but the music doesn't sound Baroque. Although it does have some Baroque forms that usually you'll hear, like especially like in this piece, you'll hear um, uh, one section like in a box suite, and then there'll be like a contrasting section that brings it back to its original key. Like it'll go up to the dominant key, and then from the dominant it'll go back to the tonic key. That's really how box suites work. And I wasn't really following the keys here, but it sounded kind of like something like that to me. Um, so the speed on this first movement, which doesn't have a marking, is pretty slow. Uh, but the rhythms are well marked, and the themes are clearly outlined. Um, this music sounds like it has a lot of joy in it, but this ensemble doesn't bring that out. They're going for something more elegant and refined. Maybe the Abbey setting. Mm-hmm. Uh has something to do with that. And in fact, the dance rhythm, is, rhythm in this is very marked. Okay, it's, it's, it sounds like so, something very elegant like aristocrats would uh, be involved mm. in. It's very appealing, and the composition itself is engaging to the ear. Uh, the second movement is a menuet, slow, again. Uh, slow is going to be a word I'm going to use a lot um, on this. The, all of these works are played at a pretty slow tempo, including the allegro, which kind of means like... Um, this this like a happiness or a joy to it and i kind of feel like they're a little too slow to put that across mm-hmm. okay the minuet again slow um probably the proper dance speed for a minuet in fact because we usually hear them a lot faster than this um i like the way the rhythm is marked to indicate where the beat falls and it's like the ensemble is playing this for a crowd of dancers um, again, the speed and approach gives the music an elegant lilt rather than a smile. And I think the smile is there. It's just not being brought out by this ensemble. This is just me guessing. I mean, I'm kind of listening to, thinking of my whole music listening history and what these, you know, classical, this um the way the music is formed kind of makes me think of other music, of course. And I'm thinking, us, oh, so a lot of things aren't really being brought out of this. Okay, we get to the third movement, Andante. This one's more song-like. And again, I'm enjoying the pulsing of the downbeat when it comes, as though it's a dance. This one is more of a classical or gallant type of melody. It's homophonic, which means there's a melody, and the rest of the instruments are all kind of playing less, say, less important melodies that are support, the harmony is supporting that main melody. So it's not polyphonic like a Baroque work would be. And the fourth movement finale is only like uh, clocks in at less than two minutes. Also, it's dance-like, and it's pretty fast, um, but not very fast, and it's appealing. All right, so we have our first uh, work there. It's a little slow, but it's nice. It's pretty. I liked it. 
The next, though, we come to a cassatio, cassation, in D major, two violins, a flautello concertato, which is played by Michael Oman, an alto viola, and a cello. Oh, boy. This really hurt my ears. <laughs> Go into this. This is a slowly played dance melody, but the, the, it features, as I mentioned, a flautello, which is a wooden flute that sounds kind of like a piccolo. Yeah. It's, it's really piercing. Yeah. And I don't feel like this soloist or this engineer took that into account. This just kind of cuts through the whole um, texture and, oh, man, it really assaults <laughs> your ears. It's, it's very loud, um, especially in its higher register where it spends a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, the pitch sounds a little tough to maintain on the flautello because um, he wavers on a lot of held notes. Um, these are older instruments, and it may have something to do with that. I remember hearing a lot of um, Baroque-era brass in the early days, although they've managed to master these um, really difficult-to-play instruments these days. Mm. It's incredible. But I remember they were always a little out of tune in the, in the early days of the period instruments right. playing, and they wouldn't get the full tone. That's, kinda, that's sort of happening here. There's a wavering tone, and I don't think it's um, vibrato either. I think it's just more like he's having trouble <laughs> maintaining the steady tone. Um, this particular movement sounds a bit careful in its pacing, uh, more than the first movement. I really felt like they were accommodating the flautello here by playing kind of more slowly and deliberately. Uh, the second movement, menuet, a flautello again, piercing, wavering in pitch on high notes. This is really getting to me at this point. It gives a roughness to the texture that I've always liked, but here... I'm not so sure. Um, this menuet doesn't have quite the dancey quality you heard in the previous piece, despite its being slow. The third movement, Andante, is played uh, con sordino, which means that all of the um, the um, string instruments have mutes on them. And uh, this flautello at this point, man, it seems like it's capable of only one shade of sound, loud and piercing and bright. It's the first thing you hear, and it takes your head off. Uh, meanwhile, all the strings play this appealingly, uh, get this appealing balance with all the, the mutes on them, and they sound really good. I like the pizzicato quality of the bass. Mm-hmm. It's just that flautello that kills it for me. But no worries, we will later hear the ensemble play with mutes with only strings. All right, fourth movement is a menuet again. We hear another one. This starts with full strings, and the flautello comes in in the middle of the phrase. In its lower register, so it's a little nicer. It sounds a bit further back in this movement, like they finally figured out, hey, you know, we're pinning the needles with this flatello. We need to place it back a little bit. It's a little easier on the ear, but only a little. Um, to be honest, this guy, the soloist here, the, the flatello player, sounds like he's struggling with the instrument. It might be the case. I don't really know much about the instrument or how hard it is to play. And the finale... Um, is a more lively movement than the other four. And again, the flautello stands out like a sore thumb. I'm glad this was over <laughs> at this point. <laughs> it was rough. Give it a listen. You'll hear what I mean. Okay. Oh, maybe you'll like it. I don't know. Next, we have another cassatio in cassatio cassation in C major. Two violins, two violas, and a bass. And uh, this starts with a divertimento, and we're back to elegance with the well-balanced strings playing this lilting. Divertimento. I hope you like lilting music because that's what you're going to hear. All of this music has a lilt to it. It's not played with like energy and joy. It's more of like a. It's. It, I think it's trying to capture something old world. Okay, mm-hmm. when they when they play this. Okay, the second movement, menuet. Um, 
for me at this point, and we're on, we're now on track eleven, and I've already heard. This is the third piece we're hearing, and by this point, I was thinking there's too little variety in this ensemble's approach to these movements. Um, they 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 tend to take them all at the same temp same sort of tempo. With they don't really color the sounds at all. Um, they use the same sort of lilt. It it just got to be a little too much. So each of these works would be great on its own, but listening to it straight through, or it's starting to get. Uh, I just kind of wanted a little bit of a change. I think the change was supposed to be the flautello in the previous movement, mm. but that wasn't really <laughs> one I enjoyed much. All right, this particular menuet has a chugging rhythm in the second theme that I feel is taken too slow, and I feel there's ample variety. Well, again, though they're using these old period instruments, so. They probably couldn't play it too much faster. Um, I feel like there's ample variety in these pieces, but the approach the ensemble is taking to them kind of disguises that. Mm. Uh, the performance lacks subtlety. Uh, the fortes are practically slashed with the bows, so I didn't really like this particular approach here. Now, the third movement on Dante is played with mutes on all these string instruments, and I liked this a lot. I like the sound of the mutes on the strings here, the gentle sound it gives the ensemble, also the way the pizzicati are sound in the bass register. Pizzicati is plucking the strings, for those who don't know. It's also a cool Italian last name. Pizzicato! <laughs> I did like that bass line. It sounds pretty yeah, attractive. Yeah, this was a pretty yeah. movement. It was well executed, too. Okay, the finale uh, is played presto, and when they get a presto marking, they actually do play it at a pretty quick uh, tempo, and it sounds good. Uh, this one has some relatively um, cheerful, chipper playing energetic on the safe side but registering well balance is good okay this next curiosity is a song <laughs> called dehex dehex means the witch it's about a witch and, and it's um, mom and it's his the it's the <laughs> singers or the yeah. the narrator of the song's mom yeah. <laughs> basically yeah. the song goes that the the singer who's apparently a little child uh, sees his mom fly off, not on a broom, but it's a, what does he say? It's a, um, a fork or something. It's it? kind of a, yes, a roasting fork. So it's yeah. probably this big kind of thing that you'd stick a piece <laughs> of beef with um, into the skies. And he's imagining what she's doing there. But she's back to being mom by dinner time when she comes back from yeah. whatever evil rounds <laughs> he imagines that she was up to. <laughs> and she puts dinner on the table and they're all happy. All right. <laughs> it's pretty amusing, really. It's pretty funny. But uh, I'm kind of wondering about this performance. Okay. What is this piece, first of all, doing in the Abbey's archives? Why are they singing about <laughs> witches in an Abbey? Anyway, I wish the booklet had given me a little bit to go on with this piece. It doesn't mention this at all. So it's hmm. just a big mystery. Okay. The vocalist here is, um, he's a viola player too, and he just kind of took the tenor role. And it's sort of like, uh, if anybody likes um, soccer or football, as you call it in Europe, it's sort of like when one of the uh, backfield players takes over in goal, you know, where they kind of, they're not really a goalie, but they do, they, right. they, they go with what they know. So this guy's a viola player, and he's singing the tenor, and he's not really such a great vocalist. I think he's trying to imitate a child's voice, um, and they figured he was like, his voice was good enough to be able to do that. Um, he kind of sounds like... I'm thinking of a recording I heard long ago of uh, The Barber of Seville by Rossini, conducted by Neville Mariner with Agnes Balza and Thomas Allen. Um, there's a scene at the beginning of Act 2 where 
Count Almaviva comes in disguised as Rosina's um, music teacher. And he has this, he puts on this nasally tone to show how kind of pedantic and boring he is. Like he's singing, Joya, Pache, Pache. It's really annoying. Oh, you sound um, like you were que- from Queens there for a minute. That's me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, I, I always revert to my Queens voice. <laughs> <laughs> or more like Brooklyn when I uh, do that. Oh, by the way, I should mention, I just saw it Saturday Night Fever again for the first time in 30 years this wow. week. Oh, boy. Did that put me back in that time? <laughs> Jeez. Wow. That oh, was the high, the high point of American fashion right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't wait for that to end. Boy, those big collars. I was only a kid then. Yeah. Your mom used to dress you in those kind of. Big oh, collars God, the big and collars, plaid pants. The fat tie, like yeah. it's like a clown suit. Jeez. Horrible. Yeah. And platform shoes, too. I didn't have any of those, though, no. thankfully. Yeah. Okay. Oof. So so this song is so, sort of sung like that. It kind of has that kind of nasally tone to it. I, I think he's going for a comic effect yeah, here. Yeah, it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. And the, there's also occasional whining strings as well. Um. He's going for a childlike sound, but to me, he kind of winds up sounding drunk. <laughs> the text. Okay, so we already went through the text. Um, again, I thought this could have been given a livelier and more amusing and appealing performance. Um, it was okay. I mean, it was interesting to listen to, I guess. But I, again, you kind of want these songs to kind of make you smile. And this kind of made me um, uh, wonder <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, two more works left. There's a divertimento. Uh, next, um, two violins, two violas, and a violone. See, they keep changing. The, there's a violone, there's a bass, there's a... I, I, you know, I guess the violone is close to the cello or maybe to mm. a viola da gamba. Um, the first movement has a nice appealing themes and tempos are on the safe side. I, I don't really need to say that anymore. It's all like this. But this is an appealing enough performance. I liked it. The menuet, we get that lilt again. Sounds good. Third movement, Andante, has a really lovely op- opening theme. Um, again, not shown in its best light by the performance. A little more subtlety in the phrasing would have really made this stand out well. This is a work uh, worth looking into if anybody's um, looking for something new to perform. Divertimento in B major. Finale is presto, and these all come across well in this album, all of the finales. Uh, there's an upbeat tempo. The phrasing is good. It doesn't have much subtlety, but it's a very appealing. All right, now the last work is sort of the biggest. This is a Parthia again, so this bookends. This is like a, the other bookend. The first work was a Parthia as well. In C major, this one has two violins, a v- okay, uh, an alto viola, two Clarini, which are sort of trumpets, early trumpets, and a bass with a tympanum. Mm. Plural would be timpani. So that's the big kettle drum. First movement, presto, and we get a little textural variety in this piece with the presence of the booming tympanum. Mm. That really just explodes out of the speakers. Um, it's pretty loud, and when the strings play forte, they make a loud slashing sound, which I really did enjoy. Um, but I did like the sound of the tympanum. It was very big and uh, well-recorded, I thought. Um, so the, um, let's see, they don't, the, the thing, the, the slashing sound that the 
strings are making here at the beginning doesn't happen often because they have a lot of uh, quiet figuration to play in this piece, and that's more pleasant to listen to. Uh, the Clarini um, play fanfare-like lines, and they tend to uh, underline approaches to cadences. So they, they tend to come in when the music is coming into the cadence. So I think it's they're sort of used as punctuation mm. in a way. Uh, the menuet is has that lilting, slowish tempo. This time, the tympanum and the clarino or clarini, two of them, punctuation. Uh, the clarini, yeah. The third movement, andante, is always played quietly. Uh, this has a nice, slow, classical-sounding melody, and uh, it's approaching a Haydn or Mozart type of melody. So I was kind of starting to hear it approach coming into that. The performance as throughout. Again, lacks subtlety. A little bit more flexibility in the uh, phrasing would have been welcome here. The finale, Tempo di Menuetto, it's a finale, but it comes across... Well, it is a minuet. Um, it's bold with the clarini and the timpano, timpanum, and it marches through its uh, under two-minute duration. It appealingly speeds up right at the end. And the whole album would sound better if it was closer to the ending <laughs> tempo. It was kind of odd. So I thought this album, it was it was hit or miss, really. I thought it was just okay. Um, the music was good. I think it's probably better than it sounded on this album. There might be like more that can be pulled out of it if anyone else mm. wants to investigate. Um, the performance doesn't show the, the music, I think, in the best light. Although it's, it's welcome because it does kind of give it to us in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um we need we need some when when there's a composer you're not familiar with you really want to show them in like the best possible light if you can um to me though this album if i were playing it i mean it's it's going to fade into the background and so if you're going to play it for yourself I mean, you can even put it on in the background while you're doing other things and it'll stay there mm-hmm. for the most part except when the the flautello comes in in the second work and the uh <laughs> tympanum in the uh last work um I'm really, I'm really happy to hear music of an unknown composer, and especially one as you know engaging as this. I like the music. Um, the approach used here is fine, but I still wanted more variety in tone and especially tempo um, in order f- to sustain the whole album. Uh, like I said, if you listen to each of these works individually, like four movements, this one, four movements, mm-hmm. that one, it probably uh, sustain more interest. But altogether, it starts to sound really gray to me. Um, I'd like to hear other approaches to this music but this is welcome just because it's new that's what i would say um i'd give it i'd say have a listen i wouldn't recommend like putting down cash for this one though yeah i kind of have similar sentiments i thought it's quite pleasant sounding um yeah it was yeah the, the music maybe it's about the particular time period that it's composed it's it has baroque sentiments but you know, it's more in uh, classical moving, era, but it's yet it's not as ornate ornate as uh, classical music becomes. You know, with Mozart and things later. So, I, I find the arrangements kind of sparse, and that actually is one of the appealing things I liked about it because you can follow the lines in the music kind of easily. And I did like the tonal balance with uh, uh, viola, violin. Uh, sort of give an equal kind of, uh, you know, yeah, tonal I should have weight. mentioned that the balances, especially in the strings, were really excellent. Yeah, so I liked that. I found the overall sort of approach kind of reserved, which started to get a bit 
unexciting after, <laughs> after <laughs> unexciting. it was going on. Um, you don't want to say was, boring. It, it was yeah. pleasant, but I was waiting to be moved more uh, yeah. by that. Uh, as you say, that uh, flute really put an edge uh, on things there, too. On, on that particular work. Yeah, that Jeez. particular work. Uh, but yeah. I did like the uh, the uh, timpani and trumpet uh, type tones on the last work. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I like I liked it. Um, as you say, could use a little bit more variety. Okay. I will say nice work for uh, giving us this composer. Though. Yeah. That was a really interesting to I me. I like it as uh, to get inside a little bit more deeply in an era and break it up and relate a certain uh, composer to you know, we sort of think of, you know, any era and those are the composers that are in it. But we don't think of, you know, on a little bit uh, deeper scale and like who was living or could have heard the other composer and how old they would be. And so you sort of get into a, a little finer time scale. I think that's kind of interesting to do. And um, yeah. yeah, one of the most interesting parts of classical music is you get the the giants, right? But then you start filling in sort of like the, the other periods and like right. who was alive at the time they were it's it, it just kind of gives you more of a, a picture yeah. of what was going on musically then yeah um, and i did like i did like the muted things and like say the the bass pizzicato is really appealing uh as a contrast yeah. in that so i could see why this composer would be really popular with string players and uh, right. people would want to you know try to play this music I hope they will. I can, yeah. I'd like to hear more of this. I want to hear a, another approach, let me say. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with this approach, but I just kind of feel like you'd benefit from some other ones. Yeah. Okay. Well, off we go. Okay, next. Now, last week we talked about a – we had a string orchestral uh, disc called Renewal. And one of the works on that disc, in fact, the one that kind of stood out was really the Mendelssohn – uh, string quartet arranged for string orchestra, and it stands out because a it's four movements, and uh, b it was written by a composer that lived a hundred years, a hundred plus years before the ones that were on the, <laughs> the album. So it was sort of uh, an odd thing to have on there. Now the reason they put that particular string quartet by uh, Mendelssohn on there, the F minor Opus 80, was because, like all the other works on the album, it um, dealt with um, death and renewal, sort of the, you know, processing grief, things like that. And that was sort of the theme of that album. So here I had, um, hearing that work, I had remembered that in around October 2021, the Tokach Quartet, one of the world's great string quartets, uh, put out an album of music by Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn, um, brother and sister. Fanny was the older of the two, the elder, I guess you would say, um, by about four years. And, um, she, uh, she was three, uh, sorry, she was three years older than Felix. And, um, this particular, um, work, the, the program really, uh, intrigued me too, because there's a string, Fanny Mendelssohn's only string quartet mm. is on here. And Fanny Mendelssohn died of, uh, complications from a stroke, um, at a very young age, I think she was at 42 or something like that. I didn't write it down this week, but I, I mentioned it last week. Um, and this left um, Felix really um, bereft. So he wrote a, a string quartet. Uh, he didn't compose for a while, and then he wrote the string quartet to sort out his feelings, the uh, 
Quartet in F minor, Opus 80. And then there's another work, uh, Mendelssohn's uh, String Quartet in A minor, Opus 13, from 1827. One of the... Uh, things that relates all of these um, works is that they all reference Beethoven who cast a huge shadow over the Romantic generation especially in the 1830s um, when these works were written. I want to mention by the way if if you're sort of uh, new to classical music the 1960s were the era of the electric guitar so you can think of the 1960s as being this watershed sort of moment in like popular music and rock music before that you would go back i guess to the 1920s to the uh the swing era the big band era and uh so swing music was that, that was the sort of uh heyday of that well the 1830s were the big decade of the piano this is when all that uh was established and it really was a decade um everybody lived in all these people lived in paris at the time um Felix would eventually go to light. They would all go to Germany eventually. Um, but um, in the 1830s, Chopin, Mendelssohn, Liszt were all in Paris as well as a lot of other uh, great pianists and musicians in general. And they started what really was the Romantic era. And they all worshipped Beethoven, basically. They saw him as the first uh, Romantic uh, composer. And um, we'll, as I go through these works, I'll mention how that happens in here. Okay, well, let's talk about I, I was thinking to myself, okay, this is going to be a great record, the Tokach Quartet. These are kind of works that I haven't heard too often, so I'm really going to get to hear them in their original guise. Now, listening to this, um, I didn't really get that beautiful melded sound that you often get from the Tokach Quartet. They're, they just always were so reliable and sounded fantastic. So I had to look this up, and it turns out, okay, the only original member left of the original quartet of 1975 is... Andras Feyer, the cellist, um, he's, and I'm pretty sure he's, he's pretty old now. Um, the ensemble had a beautifully melded sound and flowing way of playing, uh, but that has changed. Uh, there are two new members that have changed the sound of the ensemble considerably. Um, the second violinist, um, Harumi Rhodes, joined in 2018, and the violist, Richard O'Neill, joined in 2020. So there are two mm. new members in this. Uh, and the other member is uh, Edwin Edward Dusenbear, who's been their first violinist since 1993. So he's really an established mm. member of the quartet. Now, if you're going to change members of a quartet, the, the the ensemble will have a sound, and they would need to get the new player to kind of um, the new player is going to change the sound somewhat. But if you re if you replace um, a player with a carefully chosen new player, you can kind of approximate that sound or just make the adjustment to um, the other sound but here we have two players that have joined within two years of each other and this is going to change the sound a lot and in fact the ensemble doesn't sound as um slick and um sort of flowing and melt you know melded and mm. you know upholstered as it did in its um really before 2018 <laughs> to be honest um I have a lot of their recordings, and this one really does sound different. Now, it's not to say it's bad, but it's just not what I expected. Okay, let's go through these works, and I'll talk about what they sound like and what the works are about as well. The first work is Fanny Mendelssohn's only string quartet, string quartet in E-flat major. Now, Fanny um, was um, trained just like her brother in the piano and in composition, but because... Two, of two reasons. First of all, she's a woman. And second of all, she's um, from a wealthy family. So 
those two things, just because she's a woman from a wealthy family, meant that she wasn't going to go out with those animals and live <laughs> with the uh, and make a life in composition with the, all these musicians. Um, Mozart's father often warned him of the uh, foibles of professional musicians. He he didn't see them. <laughs> he saw them as rather unsavory people, and some of them were quite unsavory. So, you know, it's a sort of um, woman from a wealthy family really wasn't going to be seen in this kind of company in that era. But Fanny did do a lot of composing. She wrote mostly songs and also uh, instrumental songs, sort of songs without words. She had a different name for them, though. But like Mendelssohn did, he he called these Lieder ohne Worte. Sorry. Lieder ohne Worte. And um, Fanny had a similar but different name to these types of compositions as well. She had, And she had a real gift for melody, like her brother Felix. She didn't write many larger works. And in fact, this string quartet, which would be a large-scale work, is, is still pretty short. It doesn't really go on for very long. Each movement is around four or five minutes long. Okay, so this work was written in 1834, um, and it took her a while to write this. Uh, she started... She had some of the original themes in 1829, and they were drafts of a piano sonata. So I guess she eventually changed the, her idea and went for the string quartet. Um, also, it's in E-flat major, as I said, but it starts in C minor, which also would have been an unusual thing. This is really uh, something that um, the Romantics really introduced into music, and Beethoven to an extent, too. But he would usually go from the... Uh, not the relative minor. The um, this this is the relative minor to the major. Beethoven would go to the uh, oh, I keep forgetting the name of this when it's D minor and then goes to D major at the end. Like there's a name for that. I can't remember. Parallel. Parallel minor. There you go. Why can't I remember that? Ah, uh, because the rel because relative is sticking in my head. That's why. So this one starts in the relative minor and goes to the major. And when you do that, when you start in minor and go to major, you've got kind of a brighter sound at the end. Something positive has mm. happened because minor tends to be have a darker feel to it. Um. Okay. And then the the E flat major is established at the end of the first movement, which is labeled adagio. Manon troppo. This is a really unusual way to start a string quartet. Usually you'd start it allegro, with a flowing, fast sort of rhythm. Adagio, andare, it's, it, well, it's slower than walking. It's sort of, um, it's, it's sort of a slow tempo, sort of like a middle movement. And adagio tends to evoke song, like melodies, something sung. Okay? So this uh, movement is actually formally free and tonally adventurous as we mentioned with the C minor to E flat major. Mm. It's more like a fantasy than a sonata. It doesn't really have a development section in the middle. And part of the reason for that is it's pretty short. It's It clocks in at less than five minutes. Unusual. The first movement of a sonata is usually in a sonata form, and it'll usually go on for some time because you have to play the themes and then repeat them at the end, and then they get developed in the middle. So it takes time to do all that, especially if you're a really creative composer. Okay. In the opening bars of this work, um, um, we hear an allusion to two other quartets in the same key. She acknowledges her debt to Beethoven, a debt that every romantic composer had, um, by having her opening gesture allude to Beethoven's harp quartet, Opus 74, of 1809. Please, that's the name of the string quartet. It's, it's nicknamed the harp quartet. There are no actual harps in it. <laughs> it has that name because of the... Um, pizzicati themes okay but 
uh, she's alluding to the beginning of that here. And second, um, she nodded to the beginning of her brother Felix's Opus 12 string quartet, which we don't hear on this album, of 1829. That would have been a good choice, actually, since Mm. she alludes to it. It's unfamiliar to me. A work even more closely related to Beethoven's music than Fanny's was. Um, Short though this movement is, it's pretty dramatic, with brief outbursts of volume, a trick her whole generation learned from Beethoven. Um, there's a lot of intimacy in the writing, too. When the textures thin out, um, it, it sounds really sort of tender, beautiful. And statements are compact and are quickly and effectively communicated. There's even a pregnant pause at, three, at about 3 minutes and 33 seconds that was unusual for music at the time. Something Beethoven might have done, but it's pretty adventurous here. Okay, next we go to the second movement, Allegretto, which is a scherzo. A scherzo replaces a minuet. Beethoven started this too. And this particular scherzo has a, it says in the booklet, it has a slightly demonic quality to it, all right, which is relieved by the mock counterpoint in the middle section in C major. Uh, The C major, the counterpoint is a Beethovenian allusion to hit the third movement of his fifth symphony. Not that part though, It's, it's this middle rushing part. For me, the demonic quality that's mentioned in the booklet doesn't come out in this performance, which sounds slowish and careful. I thought this opening theme could have been attacked with more energy, and I think it probably would have um, by the older members of, if if the the older version of the Tokach Quartet were still together. I was hearing that this this group is still trying to find its balance. I find with the, with their new players, I felt, and I fr- heard that for the first time here. The third movement, Romanze, is like a Lieder ohne Worte, which is, um, yeah, there's no one out there, Worte, okay, by um, her brother Felix. Um, it's deeply expressive, so it's like a song without words. The opening is mournful and goes into an appealing, slightly weeping melody with gentle descents. It's very pretty. In the middle section, there are dramatic descending figures that I feel aren't put across with the power they require. The material sounds repetitive. There are a lot of um, um, the same sort of melodic figure repeated in in different like you know parts of the scale. Um, to me, though, when a composer does this, it's up to the ensemble ensemble to remedy the uh, the, the sound of the, the repetition. Otherwise, it gets boring. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the fault of the piece because it's meeting all of its formal aspects. Uh, the music quietens to soften more to something more eerie at the end, and the rhythm to this sounds too mechanical and measured to put the musical expression across. Um, Dusenberg, the first violinist, is carrying most of the melodic interest, but I wonder if he feels hampered by his accompaniment here, because I've heard him play like these really flowing, soaring sort of uh, melodies with this ensemble. I have a lot of older recordings of, yeah. of them with him on them. Okay, the fourth movement, Allegro Molto Vivace, is a conventional rondo. Um, this starts with a, in a lively way, with a lively figure in the upper strings acting as the rondo theme. It's not terribly memorable. It's more of like a, a figure than a melody. Usually a rondo theme has a folk-like melody, something that's easy to identify when it repeats. But this has something more athletic. There's some pretty exciting writing in between the theme, uh, the movement moves along at full speed practically throughout, and I'm not getting the familiar, the familiar blend I'm used to with this ensemble. The ry- rhythmic playing 
is too careful. All right, next we get to the centerpiece, Felix Mendelssohn's String Quartet in F minor, Opus 80. This is Felix's last string quartet. He wrote it to, as I mentioned before, to um, sort of sort through his feelings about his sister's death. And he himself died months after writing this of the same thing that his sister died of. Weird. Mm. Okay, he also had a stroke at the age of 38. Wow. We've already outlived them both, Russ. Yep. People lived. Um, people didn't live long there, but I think uh, they lived much. They left a lot behind, uh, which I sadly can't say for myself. <laughs> I'm just going to leave a lot of CDs behind. That's <laughs> a lot of books too. All right. Um, for the for those unfamiliar with this work, it has a bit of the roiling quality of Schubert's Death and the Maiden Quartet's first movement. And uh, it should it should have that kind of thing. It's it's very Beethovenian, really, but I kind of thought it had to have that kind of energy. The first movement is labeled Allegro Vivace Assai, and then Presto later on. So there's a there's an introduction, and then the main section is Presto. Um, the opening creates a good stormy mood, and the ensemble sound is slightly better here. Um, the, the the aggression that they're using here could have been used to good effect in the Fanny Mendelssohn Quartet that we just heard. Um, they were more careful with that one, and um, which is surprising because this one sounds more difficult to play. Really, mm. uh, maybe the the Fanny Mendelssohn Quartet was a little unfamiliar to them. It's not played often. It's starting to be because a lot of women composers' music is being is being sought out now. We're starting to hear a lot of these quartets, and they're starting to get a performing tradition, which is really good to hear. Um, the ensemble here in the Mendels in the Felix um, Quartet, um, maybe the ensemble might be more familiar with this work, um, but I'm still getting a, a sense of timekeeping over expression. There's, I'm not hearing much flexibility, and after the Alman too, I'm kind of getting really impatient with this sort of thing. Uh, the melodic lines lack expressive elasticity. Uh, this very urgent dramatic movement comes across as both uh, dramatic and urgent, but not to the degree that it can. And in fact, if you want to hear the degree that it can come across, you should listen to the um, uh, recording we heard last week the, uh, of the, with the string mm. orchestra. They really put this across with great urgency and also a wider dynamic range because it's a, a string orchestra yeah, arrangement. You got the bass in there too. You got the bass too. It's unfair, really. Okay. Second movement, Allegro Assai. Um, let me see. This one has an aggressive opening as well. Again, I noticed that the repeated opening figure sounds the same each time. You want to color these a little bit, just subtly. And I don't need to tell a quartet like this that. They, they would tell me that because they've been <laughs> at this much longer than I did. But again, um, with new members, it's, it's hard to get that sort of comfortable... Th- feeling that you just know what everybody else is going to do, you know, and, and it gives you a, you know, they're going to react if you try something or something like that. Okay. So I think they haven't been playing, especially the newest member joined in 2020 and they probably didn't play live because of the, the COVID mm-hmm. um, pandemic. Let me see. Uh, the sudden changes from loud to soft don't sound as sudden or surprising as they should either. Third movement, Adagio. Um, okay, this was where um, Felix's sister 
Fanny excelled as a composer. And I think he's the world of song because she wrote a lot of songs or melody or melodic works, one movement works that were like songs for that were instrumentals. And uh, th this movement recalls that. And he may be recalling her music here. Again, there's something matter of fact about the phrasing play as it's played by this particular quartet no fault of Mendelssohn's um, this is a moving piece of music that didn't move me as it should um, the occasional dissonances just sound disturbing without carrying emotional weight and the finale Allegro Molto the roiling begins again but again the same disappointing measuredness of all the phrases takes away any drama this lacks elasticity that you would expect from an ensemble of this caliber and this is a dramatic movement the dissonant cries outcries the dissonant outcries sound kind of petulant here they don't really sound painful as they should um this is a powerful string quartet that doesn't come across with the power built into it okay now it might sound like i'm being kind of harsh but i've again like i've said i've heard some great some of the, the best ever performances i've ever heard given by this same Ensemble with different members, of course, mm -hmm. and I'm um, not getting that here. This is it's falling kind of. It 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 doesn't feel like there's any magic in this. It just sounds like they're, you know, high level professionals playing. But I'm not getting that extra thing that you mm -hmm. expect from an ensemble like this. Okay, we have one more quartet on this um, album. This is by Felix again. String quartet in A minor, Opus 13. This is from 1827. So this is the year of Beethoven's death. This quartet also processes the Sidioso Quartet of Beethoven, as well as his A minor, Opus 132, and B flat major, Opus 130 quartets. Um, all worth hearing, by the way. Needless to say. <laughs> you, should really, you really should. This is something, you know how people say you got to know the Shakespeare plays, you know, at least the alloys. Everybody should hear all the Beethoven symphonies and string quartets. Oh, They're yeah. just so important for Western music. And uh, they're also um, kind of important for your... Um, spiritual development too if you're going to keep listening to them because they really go into some territory that other composers haven't gone into since yeah the string and, quartets and all was. of his uh, piano works too his piano sonatas as well those especially. over and over always right. get something new that's true especially the late ones which mm -hmm. i'm still to this day well i think i got those okay i still struggle with those a little bit mm. especially the string quartets they have a lot of secrets in them that aren't um easily uh sort of um they aren't you don't really kind of pick them up too easily yeah, yeah. some of them are still puzzles for me anyway Mendelssohn took a lot of inspiration for this work from his love song Fraga ist es wahr opus 9 number 1 and it provides the overarching theme for the four movements with explicit references to it in the outer movements 1 and 4 and implicit reminiscences of it in the inner ones 2 and 3 um, this moves the quartet close to the genre of art song. Okay, so you're sort of, if you know the um, words to the uh, song and you hear that melody played, it kind of, it's sort of like these old, sort of the, the way a lot of old uh, church music, the Cantus Firmus, was thought to carry the holiness of the words that it was set to. So you could play that and the... The, the presence of the divine would be in that line as you kind of played other things around it. Okay, movement one starts adagio, that's an introduction, and then allegro vivace is the main section. 
Um, this particular performance is hampered by the same problems as the previous two. Uh, harmonic figures that used to float now sound right off the page. That's pretty harsh. It doesn't sound like that bad. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's, it's a little disappointing given what this quartet has done in the past. Even the occasional playful qualities come across as more stone-faced. Um, this is a dramatic movement. The second movement, Adagio non lento, is again, has measured phrasing. Uh, the gentler elements in this movement don't come across in the intimate way that they should. And I'm having a rough time listening to this at this point. Because again, you're hearing a whole... I, I didn't break these up. I just listened to the whole album straight through. And uh, by the end, I was getting a little impatient with it, I have to say. Mm. Maybe it would have been better to just go back and listen to this later. Um, there are beautiful elements in the score that aren't coming across. The third movement, Intermezzo, Allegro con Molto, and then Allegro di Molto. Uh, the opening section has an appealing melodic figure accompanied by pizzicati. I enjoyed that. Again, the middle section sounds too measured to provide much appealing contrast. It sounds kind of uh, rascally, and I'd like to hear more humor in the playing here. Um, the false cadence at the end is very appealing, but it's not convincingly put across by the ensemble. It should really come like a surprise. It was really nice, mm. but... Uh, Again, a little too measured for me. The fourth movement, presto, and then going to adagio non lento. So it's fast going back to slow, which kind of gives you an idea of what he's thinking of here. Um, well, actually, no, that's not true. This I'm still thinking of the previous work. Okay, this starts with fire, but the anguished cry from the violin doesn't come across with fire. There's good fleetness on the figuration in the upper strings, but the aggression and fire of this movement don't come across. So this is a good release with an interesting program, but I'm not hearing the magic that a quartet of this caliber can produce or used to produce and has produced in the past. It sounds like a struggle between different generations with nobody winning. The ensemble just isn't gelling. And again, they, they I'm sure they will eventually once they get out and start playing. Um, the program is so interesting to me and this feels to me like a missed opportunity. Um, so I'd say listen if you like the program, but I didn't think this was really the best sort of um, performances of these works. I noticed the difference in the uh, tone quality of the ensemble. For me, their recordings used to have this sort of signature sheen to the string mm. blend that I always... Sheen is a good word. It was hard to describe. It just had that certain, you know, identifiable sound to that, which seems to be altered now. Well, with two different players from those other recordings that I have, that's going to happen. And... I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and I didn't, uh, you know, th think of as exactly as you did about what's kind of missing. But I said that the the overall level of expression isn't quite up to yeah. what I'm used to. Uh, right. In in a lot of their uh, the recordings, you're really uh, impressed by that next level of interpretation right. and sort of forcefulness of the emotions that they get out of the music here. It's not bad at all. It's, you know, these are good performances because their technique is, uh, you know, always, you know, top level, but that extra emotional sort of uh, feeling I didn't really get from these, especially after having heard, you know, the uh, F minor 
number six last week. Right. Uh, of Same course, with me. They're not to compare the, for me. the sonic uh, impact of a larger ensemble in this, but I felt that especially the tempos and uh, forcefulness of that performance last week was really kind of impressive. And here, yeah. I wasn't as moved as much. So uh, maybe it's just going to take more time to develop, you know, that same kind of uh, expressiveness well, to, with new members. Yeah, they need to get out and you know and play like several yeah. nights a week. Yeah, well, it I'm could surprised be. that uh, Andres Fayer is still kind of willing to do that. He's got to be in his 70s by now. Yeah, he's going to travel all around the world. Probably feel jet lagged. Got to give a performance. I don't know. Mm. He gets a hard life at that age. He must really love it, though. All right, now my last um, pick was. Uh, kind of made it worthwhile because I thought this was excellent. This is all 20th century music and 21st century music. Well, is it? I don't know. Anyway, Alfred, the main works here are by Alfred Schnitka, who we've heard on this uh, podcast before, but we haven't heard any of his uh, vocal music. This is his concerto for choir and his three sacred hymns. And also as a bonus, we get Arvo Pert's seven Magnificat Antiphons, a set of works I really love. Um, this is by the Estonian Philharmonic Chamber Choir, conducted by Kaspars Putninch. And it's on the Beast label. And this is an SACD. Oh, I didn't mention the um, Tokach was on Hyperion. I, I got I to gotta mention these things. You got to mention the record labels. <laughs> anyway, the Alfred Schnitko was... Uh, yeah, by the way, the, the Mendelssohn, you won't be able to hear. <laughs> Let's just sample it because... Hyperion doesn't put their recordings on uh, streaming services, but Beast does. Um, now, for me, this was an SACD, and I had access to uh, um, surround sound, 5.1 channel, stereo. And I'm not sure if this is 5.0 or 5.1, but 5.1 would mean there's a subwoofer. But it doesn't matter because this is a choir, and when the choir stops you hear the decay of the sound in the church all around you. And it's just magical. It, it's, this is a recording that's well worth hearing in surround just for the little subtle. <laughs> that um, was one of the things I was going to say. I yeah. think this recording has the longest reverb decay that I've ever heard. Anything. <laughs> it just goes on forever. I thought forever. it was magical. I liked yeah. it a lot. It sounds great in surround. Let's just say that. It goes on forever. It was probably recorded. I, I have it right here. I got to look. But it was I was wondering because it's not on the Presto notes or anywhere or on the cover. So I, I was wondering where it was recorded. Oh. Like catacombs somewhere. Okay. I didn't send you that part, huh? Let me see. Recording. Man, I can't even see this. I got to get my... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a tiny at the Nigulista Kirik St. Nicholas Church in Tallinn, Estonia. Oh. Okay, producer and sound engineer Jens Braun. Take five music production. So let's give them all credit. So this was recorded in a church. And it sounds like it too. It's got this big decay. <laughs> it's bigger than any yeah. church. Yeah, it just goes on forever. I love churches though. I mean I've heard I remember I don't the I went to a church in uh in Paris, France, one year, and I heard like Mozart's clarinet concerto, and it was a small ensemble. But the church, the the this, the reverb, the decay in the church mm. was just too big for this work, right. you know. But if you have a giant choir there, it's different. The the works are written well, for the that space. I think and they, this it works really well. It it works really well for this music because this is something different. It's sort yeah. of uh, 
otherworldly, which yeah, is based so on these mm. sort of uh, long extended open intervals, right? Well, you're going to get to right. all this, but uh, I think bit, this yeah. is the over the overwhelming impression. You, you get these open intervals which don't form you know, triads of major or minor all the time. Right. Then you get tones that are stacked on top of them, often creating really dense harmonies. And then things sort of shift and go into new directions, sometimes with dissonances. But having that extended natural, um, you know, reverb allows for those the tones to keep blending you know, even once new notes are being sung. So you, you get this sort of hanging character to these sounds. And uh, I think it actually helps in the performance of right. uh, what's going on uh, harmonically in this music. All right. I should mention you the way what you said, the whole decay in the church. I love that. And I love one of the, I'll just tell the audience one of my favorite things in life is the sound of bells. I just love oh. bells of all kinds, you know, like chimes yeah. or like, you know, European church bells, like when the church bells ring in like, say, a European city, mm. I just kind of stop and listen because I just love the sound so right. much. I just can't keep going. And even these gigantic Buddhist like bells that we have here with the, 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 the rich like uh, <laughs> overtones that yeah, just yeah. go on forever. It's really incredible. I just, yeah. I just love it all. I just, yeah, bells are one like of my ringing. favorite things on earth. Ringing. Maybe uh, ringing I don't again. know if it ringing is the right thing, but I, and I like uh -huh. the whole like decay of it and how it, and mm. that's one of the reasons why I love Alvaro Pert's music. But we'll get to that, that when we talk about his. First, we have um, Alfred Schnitka. Now, first of all, I want to mention, by the way, this is the second choral release by this ensemble on Beast of music by these two composers. The first came out in 2018, and that one's pretty excellent too. So if you like this, you're gonna to want to seek that one out too. Um, and I think you you are going to like this, unless there's something that puts you off about it. Um, I actually have friends who say um, they like Baroque music, but they don't like the harpsichord. And uh, my response hmm. is always, well, then you don't like Baroque music. <laughs> Yeah. that's all you're going to hear. Yeah, you know? It's strange. It's like strange saying, I like man. rock music, but I don't like the drums. I don't like the electric guitar. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Hmm. You, I don't understand Curious. that. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know what they're talking about there. Anyway. The works on this disc, they are Concerto for Choir and Three Sacred Hymns by Avrachnika and Seven Magnificat Antiphons by Avro Pert. They all document the resurgence of Christianity in the last decades of the Soviet Union. And, I mean, I, I wasn't there, but just judging from the music that came out of this, this must have been a magical thing because the religious music that came out of here and really out of Estonia afterwards by Pert and by other composers has a lot of... It doesn't sound formal, really, in any way. It sounds really heartfelt, like these people... Mm really believes you know it, it gives you the same feeling that you see you, you have when you go to europe and you see those gigantic european cathedrals you know like oh boy this you know just the the work put into this and this the design it's just these these are people who definitely believed in god you know mm. there doesn't be no other reason to do something like this 
Anyway, both composers became Orthodox Christians, so Russian Orthodox, in the 1970s when state restrictions on the church were gradually relaxed. Remember, the Soviet Union was an atheist state. This is one of the tenets of communism. And uh, when you keep people away from the faith for a while and then they're allowed to go back to it, I don't know, real magic happens. At least it does here. Uh, I loved this entire album. And it was also kind of unique to my ear because it doesn't sound like a, a Western mass by any means, either of these. So the Orthodox has a bit more of a, a bit more spice in it, let's say, in, as far as the music goes. Mm. Okay, the f- biggest work on this disc is the first one, Schnitke's, Alfred Schnitke's Concerto for Choir, written in 1984 to 1985. Um, this was around the time where I first heard of Alfred Schnitke because there was some sort of exchange of Soviet composers with American composers, and they came to Boston, of all places, where I was going to school at the time. Actually, it was probably a little after this particular work, but uh, he was one of the first um, like contemporary composers. He's, he's now dead, but at the time, he was still alive, and uh, he was one of the first contemporary composers I got interested in. Um, this work draws on 19th century developments and combines chant-inspired melodies, this is from the Russian church, the Orthodox, with rich romantic harmonies. So you want to think uh, Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff here. Um, It's trying to kind of bridge two worlds. The texts are by the medieval Armenian poet Gregory of Narek, who lived 951 to 1003, and they come from his magnum opus, The Book of Lamentations. Uh, those texts were written in classical Armenian, but uh, Schnitke here uses modern Russian translations by Naum Grebnev, give him credit. And a humanistic individualism informs the texts, ideal for our times really, uh, with the poet directly expressing his emotions and often writing in the first person. And these texts I found were very moving, especially when they were set the way they are here. Um, They're worth looking at. Now, they all have Russian titles, which I am not going to uh, allow you to (laughs) mock me by pronouncing. Uh, (laughs) I'll give you the English translations. I Yeah. Okay. The first one, O Master of All Living. This is the first uh, movement of four in this pretty big work. This is the most meditative of the four movements. And the melodic lines evoke ancient chants. Boy, you're just right in this wonderful, like, churchy space right from the beginning of this. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's really hypnotic. But with an added feeling of introspection expressed by the dissonant harmonies, which occur occasionally. Um, beautiful recorded sound on this, as is often the case in choral recordings, especially on SACD. Somehow they really capture this well. Um, the Russian text, by the way, if you have the booklet, is fairly easy to follow due to the voices all singing the text together, though the harmony, though in harmony. Okay, for me, the religiosity in these works come through strongly in the 21st century. Um, these these were composers who lived under enforced atheism for their entire lives until the 1970s, and even then there were restrictions. Once the Soviet bloc fell, their spirituality burst out in music, and this is a gorgeous example from Schnitka. Um, I want to also say, um, thankfully, the booklet text is written in Roman characters, not in Russian Cyrillic, because if they were, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to follow them. So it's kind of more of a fanatic Roman thing. Now, this probably might be a disappointment to uh, native Russian speakers um, who know how to read Cyrillic. I mean, that would be their alphabet. But uh, I was really grateful that these were <laughs> Roman. I could follow the text 
and it was quite easy to follow. Um, now I've known this about Parrot. He writes, Avril Parrot wrote a lot of um, religious music and still does, but I'm glad we're hearing Schnitke's response to this lightning of strictures on religion. Uh, Schnitke can be dissonant, but here tradition comes through strongly. There are some gorgeous harmonies in this movement, especially when the high sopranos hold stratospherically high notes and the overtones of the lower voices are allowed to fill in the space. That is so beautiful. He leaves a lot of space in the middle for those um like lower voices to uh the the voice to just the overtones to fill in the space. I just love that so much. Second movement is called uh this collection of songs where every verse that's the first line. This is more dramatic than the first movement, and there's an insistent pulse in the basses which the movement builds over, and it eventually culminates the movement in a 17-part climax, so the voices are singing 17 different parts. Uh, there's some pretty cool, cool meaning, wow, that sounded cool, but dark and harsh harmonies over the pulsating bass, making the texture sound like you're listening to a vinyl record that melted in the sun. You know, oh, that, that kind pitch of thing? falling, yeah. 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 That was really cool, I thought. Yeah. And it ends no, yeah. It ends sounding to me like a like a human organ, like yeah. the the yeah, stacked so effect of all the pipes and the way they faded out. Um right. to me I I went from voice to sort of uh listening to a human organ ensemble almost yeah it's very interesting effects in this was an interesting movement in general actually uh yeah there's some highly appealing sudden changes of vocal textures in this movement where one group of voices will hand off the melody to another group so sopranos to tenors for example or where text sung by men's low voices will be taken over by higher women's voices entirely there's these quick changes of timbre uh slightly adventurous but beautiful especially due to the text which asks God to give salvation to all who read or hear the writer's verses. And he says the verses are full of suffering. So even the text is very moving to me, and the, the music only enhances that. And this uh, ends with the same amen that we started with. Um, the third movement is actually the first to be written. It's called To All Who Grasp the Meaning. This is the movement the rest of the concerto was expanded from. It was premiered in Istanbul, Turkey, of all places, hmm. by Valery Polyansky and the USSR Ministry of Culture Chamber Choir. Uh, Polyansky encouraged Schnitka to expand the work, and the complete concerto was premiered by the same ensemble in Moscow on, in June 1986. Hmm. Um, that's only four years before the Soviet Union fell. And I think Gorbachev would have been the premier at the time. I didn't look it up, though. It's a resigned prayer with repeated figures creating a trance-like effect. It's the second longest movement at just over 11 minutes. And this has a long text like the first movement and moves through it rather quickly. There's some gorgeous melisma again from a solo soprano. Melisma is when you um, have one vowel sound that you sing on different notes. Ah, you hear this a lot in church music. Okay. Um... And we heard that from time to time in the first two movements, and this really drew my ear here. There's some fantastic harmonies in this movement as the lower men's voices chant and the women's voices sing weeping figures in art harmonies above in the middle of the movement. A weeping figure would be something gently descending. Ah, ah, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a cool chromatic ascent inside the six-minute mark, too. It just happens once. Keep an ear out for that. 
There's a kind of vocal thickness to Russian choral works that we hear throughout this work, but they came to mind for me especially in this movement, like paint being slathered on a wall or canvas really thickly. So these voices are really amassed here. And also, like you said about the organ at the end of the second movement and had that mm. same effect. The fourth movement and the last one is called Complete This Work, which I began in hope. This movement returns to the contemplative mood of the first with similar chants and dissonances, which are all dispelled at the end with an ethereal major triad, unusual to hear in the 20th century. Yeah, <laughs> and those are the major triad. Amens at the end are rather yeah. organ-like to me right. to hear that. They just fade out with the amen, amen, and then right. you're at peace. Yeah, this is a pretty short movement. It's only about just over four minutes, and it's kind of a bookend to the first movement. Um, at the ending triad, we can clearly hear some of the spectacularly low, rich bass notes sung by the lowest voices of this choir, and that's a big wow. This is a gorgeous ending, and the, with the sopranos calmly floating the higher notes of the ending chord. Two of the magical things that Russian choirs, this is an Estonian choir, but uh, I guess the the satellite Soviet countries too have this quality. They have those what they call the black bass, this really deep um, bass voice. It kind of makes them... Russian choirs are one of the choirs in the world that really sound unique, along with uh, English choirs and American choirs, especially gospel choirs. They have a unique sound, and uh, Rush is one of those. And I just love those really low bass notes. And also those sopranos like that can get really high up. Mm. I, I like them together. Okay. Next, we have uh, another work by Schnitka, Three Sacred Hymns for Mixed Choir. This is much shorter, and it comes from 1984. These three works evoke orthodox chant, and they were written for the conductor, the same guy as above, Valery Polyansky. They set prayers from the orthodox prayer book. The texts are in church Slavonic, the ancient language of orthodox liturgy. But Schnitka writes them in the Cyrillic script of modern Russian. We get them in the booklet in Roman letters, thankfully, as I said, okay, and with an English translation. Um, again, I hope that doesn't let down our Russian listeners. Easier for us in the West to follow. <clears throat> okay, the first uh, movement, the first piece. Um, <laughs> Hail Mary, full of grace. Should I try to say this? Something like that. Hail Mary. It's Hail Mary. This is set for double chorus. The second imitates the first, but in a lower key. So we get some mild dissonances. This is a really cool effect, I have to say. Because mm. the second, it's almost like in canon, but it's not. It's 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 really interesting. I like the sound it makes. It sounds like waves gently undulating, one layer overlapping another. And this is a very short movement at 1 minute and 33 seconds. The second movement, or the second prayer to be set, is called Lord Jesus, Gospodji Jesus Christ. This begins quietly, gradually building in range and dynamic to a powerful climax, uh, which happens pretty quickly as this movement is only a minute and 15 seconds long. It doesn't end on the loudest note, interestingly enough, which comes slightly before. And the next one, Our Father, this is pronounced either Okanesh or Ochanesh. I don't really know which one is correct. 
This is the longest and most... Ele- Actually, it's not pronounced anything like either of them, probably. <laughs> but there you go. Longest and most elaborate setting of the set. This uh, is harmonically adventurous, and it uses a range of 19th century progressions and ends with an emphatic but harmon- harmonically ambiguous amen. This one passes from quiet to loud to quiet to loud in crescendoing and decrescendoing waves. And very beautiful. Okay, after that, we get a very famous work by Alvaro Pert, Seven Magnificat Antiphons. This has been recorded many times. Uh, Pert is a contemporary composer. He is the most often performed living composer and has been for maybe a decade now. Every year he gets named that. Um, This one was written in 1988 and then revised in 1991. And it's for mixed choir, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, a cappella. I never get tired of hearing this work. All right. Now, Arvo Pert has a style of writing called uh, Tintinabuli. It's an extension of the harmonic practices of Orthodox choral music. He wrote these works in West Berlin in 1988. And this work, um, with the Tintinabuli written into German language and Catholic liturgy, is an East-West hybrid. The texts derive from the evening prayer liturgies of the Roman Catholic Church for the seven days leading up to Christmas Eve, 17th to the 23rd of December. Each antiphon gives a name for Christ used in Old Testament prophecies. Now, this particular piece, it you would chant these prayers in the days coming up to Christmas. But um, here, the way the piece is written, it's really meant to be performed all at once because it's short enough and because of the it's it's got a structure that kind of is very satisfying um it's symmetrically structured with movements one four and seven set for full choir and the other movements the textures are reduced the low range of the movement uh two for male voices movement two is reflected in movement six um while the high range of movement three for female voices returns in movement five so it's all balanced it's nice to hear it all performed in one evening. The work is in Pert's Tintinabli style, as I mentioned. And what this is, is one voice sings a melodic line, it's like a song line, while the other holds a note from the underlying harmony, and it creates a bell-like resonance. Please, we don't hear the attack of the bell. We hear the sort of resonating bell sound afterwards. So Tintinabuli, I know this word from Edgar Allan Poe. I think he may have invented it in his poem, The Bells. But um, that's what it is. It's that kind of resonating sound that these uh, harmonies make. It's really beautiful. I just love it. Um, Changes in pitch in the melodic line are linked to the stressed syllable of each word, which is usually, usually set at the top of a stepwise ascent. The technique evokes the recitation-like quality of liturgical chant and aligns the music closely with the text. The work sounds simple, but a lot of complex thought went into this. All right, let's go through these. O Weishait is the first movement of the seven. Uh, This text is a prophecy about the wisdom of Christ that will fill the world from one end to the other. And because of that, we get expansive choral textures that express that breadth of the world being filled from one world to the other, as our ears are filled from one end to the other with these expansive textures. The setting is quiet and light with mostly high voices, and the tenors sound like the lowest voices, or their high basses. I think they're tenors. The tone of the work is coaxing, like it's kind of trying to encourage this wisdom to come to us. 
The second movement, and my personal favorite, is O Adonai, which is a name for God used in the Old Testament. Um, it looks back to the time of Moses, and the sound of this uh, movement is deliberately archaic. The tenors and basses trade off melody and accompaniment. Uh, the accompaniment evokes the medieval organum style of plain chant. And for me, this is the most spectacular movement, but I've heard recordings where the quality of the bass voices really nail your feet to the floor. That doesn't happen here. They don't really just bottom out. Um, they're, they're kind of underplayed here, focusing more on the melodic continuity of the piece. And no problem with that, but you just don't get that wow kind of to it. Okay, it's still a really gorgeous performance. No worries there. Next, Ospros aus Isais Wurzel, the root of Jesse, O root of Jesse, or tree of Jesse, you can call it. This illustrates the idea of growth through continually rising phrases and all women in this particular one. The previous movement was the all male movement, and this one's all female. Fourth movement, O Schlüssel Davids, O Key of David. This is the work's central climax, it's the middle movement. It's a hymn of praise in broad textures and continuously loud dynamics. Um, this connects to the previous movement with the men's verses suddenly filling in the bottom. So we get the end of the women's movement, and then suddenly the men's voices come in at the bottom. It's a really beautiful transition. This is a startlingly loud movement with clear harmonies throughout. Movement 5, O Morgenstern, O Morning Star, is contrast, a contrast to the fourth movement. Um, it's quiet. And the harmonies alternate between major and minor, giving the piece a nebulous, ethereal effect. Very appealing. Listen to that major for that major-minor change. It, it happens throughout. It's really uh, nice. Movement six, O König alle Wölke, O King of the Nations. Wölke, I hope I said that right. This gives the impression of many people through the voices singing the same music at different speeds. So King of the Nations, we're hearing the nations in this one. The sopranos sing at half the tempo of the tenors. Um, in this particular piece, it says here the sopranos in the booklet, but they sound like mezzos to me. They're sort of lower women's voices. Uh, and the basses, too. The tenors and basses sing the same text twice to conclude with the sopranos. The lower voices stand out, making it easy to follow the text, despite all this overlapping. And the seventh movement called O Emmanuel. This is the most diverse movement in terms of textures and dynamics. The text is sung three times. This is the only time this happens in this work. And the first time it's sung very quietly, the second time loudly, and the third is a contemplative reflection. The tintinabuli effect is applied differently each time, but the final section returns to the technique as it is employed in the first movement, a quiet invocation of the opening textures to draw the cycle to a close. So we get the word cycle is well used here because this piece does sort of make a circle. It connects to the beginning again. There's beautiful singing throughout, but overall this particular performance is taken a little faster than others I've heard. It's none the worse for that, but I these sounds are so beautiful that I like it performed a little more slowly so I can really linger on those gorgeous harmonies. You don't get enough time, I, I feel, on this to revel in the wonderful harmonies, but that's nevertheless, this is a really good performance. Um, if you're lucky enough to hear this uh, album in surround, you'll really enjoy the decay of voices in the space all around you. As I said, um, you get the sense that you're in a big church, which you actually are. 
and the sound decays in the air for full seconds after the singing has stopped. There's some harsh-sounding harmonies in this piece, but they're balanced by the tranquility and consonance of other sections or movements, and they're good for your ear. It's like broccoli for your ear. It's good. Okay? Don't let that bother you. Enjoy this. This is a fantastic performance, recording. It's great music. Highly recommended. Yeah, these are more um, meditative, I yeah. would say, um, and the influence and emphasis of chant is uh, more apparent. So you have some more static kind of lines uh, in some of the, uh, you know, lyrics that are going on. Focus on the lyrical content, and then they develop into kind of more of like a hymn-like quality, uh, but still have sometimes surprising, uh, moderately dissonant kind of phrases. But as you say, the overall sort of uh, tranquility and spaciousness of it makes it easy to listen to. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of a nice pairing uh, with the schnitke. And, uh, yeah, very interesting kind of sound world that you're yeah. transported into here. There's nothing quite uh, like this uh, in yeah. the, the vocal quality, the sense of space, and then the real modern openness of the sound. Uh, you're in a different world of uh, voice yeah. and uh, song here. Very Eastern European Russian, the Russian Orthodox Church, or the Orthodox right. Church, we yeah. say, yeah. yeah it, does, it does focus your your energy in a spiritual way kind mm. of uh, um, inward in a way and then it opens your ears to the sort of resonances in the, in the sound so yeah very unique yeah well said I liked this a lot yeah and if you like it there's another one released uh, three years before check that one out too on the yeah. same label by the same ensemble well right. I'm all just just thinking of listening to that again, I've got me all yeah, meditating. Yeah, it was really... Yeah, it was good. I'll have to... That'll be on my uh, list. They came out at uh, in October, I think, 2021. I'm hmm. still listening to 2021 records, although the 2022 ones are starting to slowly um, come and in, creep into the collection here. All right. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, that brings us to the jazz portion of the podcast. And today we're going to take kind of a journey. Um, mm. Well, the first release is on Riverboat Records. We're going to need more than a riverboat for tonight's <laughs> journey. I think you're going to need a, a larger craft. Um, and this one is called uh, Joala. And oh. this is by... Anwar Kadur Sharif. So we're going to be uh, kind of uh, taking a journey along the uh, Mediterranean-bordered countries, and uh, then we're going to uh, go to the other side and uh, go back uh, to New York at the end. Uh, anyway, uh, Sharif is uh, originally from Satif in Algeria, hmm. and uh, he's a multi-instrumentalist, uh, who studied the classical music traditions of North Africa, uh, performing with lots of uh, Eastern Algerian groups. And uh, he developed uh, a deep interest in uh, Arab 
Andalusian music uh, and uh, worked on uh, his composition and also singing along with uh, his uh, instrumental playing. And, and he's got a now, really nice voice too, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he does he's have a really good voice, really appealing. Which, which he puts on two of the tracks here. Uh, however, uh, he left his native Algeria a few years ago and uh, he's still quite young. He's in his 20s yet, but uh, he settled in Switzerland. It's a big contrast there. Uh, and uh, so this has become a, his new musical environment. And he's uh, now working on combining these kind of uh, Arabic type uh, sounds uh, with jazz. Uh, and uh, his uh, instrument of choice these days is the uh, Algerian mandol. And uh, on this album, we've got a unique ensemble. One of the things I'm always interested in sort of a modal influence of jazz with other cultures. Me too. It's like modes in general. Just church music always has modes too, so I'm always into that. And then, uh, you know, a lot of uh, sort of this uh, Middle Eastern or Northern African influenced uh, music, they, for some reason, I don't know what the tradition is, but they bring in the bass clarinet. So whenever I see bass clarinet, um, that's another plus one for I want to listen to it because it's a cool instrument, right? Uh, so we've got some bass clarinet on here too. Uh, and uh, also, as I said, he adds some of his vocals in here too. So uh, this has uh, caught my attention and it turned out to be a kind of interesting exploration of uh, Arabic music and jazz. Now, I was interested uh, in this instrument as well. So the Algerian mandol, uh, it's not an ancient instrument. Uh, it's actually a modern kind of creation to fit uh, certain types of instruments. And it, so I looked it up. It's uh, So this is a steel string kind of fretted instrument that resembles what we know as a mandolin. Um, this one is actually quite a bit uh, bigger, I think, uh, it would be like in a tenor range of mandolins and so it's basically the european mandola that was redesigned in algeria and i think it goes uh, back to the uh, 1930s uh, italian luthier sort of made up this new design based on recommendations from uh, algerian musicians and there's a lot of variety in it you can have eight ten 12 strings. A lot of them are doubled. Uh, and then uh, some of them have additional frets, so you can get quarter tones, uh, depending cool. on the music you want to play. <laughs> and then you can tune it differently. You can tune it in a guitar tuning, in a, a traditional kind of tuning, E-A-D-G-B-E. You can tune it like an oud. Uh, you can tune it like a mandocello, uh, whatever kind of music you want to play. So it seems to be kind of, you know, an adaptable music for different uh, types of scales, uh, sorts of music. So it makes it kind of interesting. So here Sharif is on the Algerian mandol, and as I said, he sings on two tracks. We've got uh, Clement Munier on bass clarinet, Hans Juncker drums, and Antoine Brochot on uh, double bass. 
which makes an interesting combination. Now, it's really hard to explain uh, in the same way as listening to classical or kind of uh, traditional jazz what you're hearing. And um, so, doing especially my, with all the changing meters. Boy. Yeah, the meters and the modes. So, um, you know, you get your get your counting cap on and try to figure out what's going on. And as soon as you got to figure it out, it's changed and off in a different direction. Right. So it's very rhythmically um, kind of ethereal and changing music. Uh, but that's what makes it interesting. Uh, track one on this recording, uh, Sans Pap. It starts with some repeated unison figures with the bass clarinet and mandols. That happens a lot on this album. They'll be working together on a melodic figure before... Uh, going into divergent things uh, with the different instruments. Gets a fast eight beat dance feel that develops, uh, drum toms and fills uh, and like kind of flurries in the two instruments uh, and some slower triplet figures as the melody goes on. So the rhythm changes up. It transforms into a lighter kind of lilting melody, still with the mandol working together with the bass clarinet uh, and the bass clarinet gets some kind of nasty snarls uh, in there too <laughs> with a new accented rhythm section. Um, and they get back to the earlier section and then the fast dance feel again to take it out. Uh, so it's quite a rhythmic ride on the first track uh, to start things out. Uh, kind of like a musical water slide with lots of turns in it. Uh, track two is called Albatross. This one uh, begins with a rubato mandol and... Uh, Get some kind of uh, dove-like cries. Uh, I guess he's doing that on a bass clarinet. Can you do that? <laughs> That's what it sounds like, almost bird, bird-like. Um, and then underneath, you get some subtle bass bowing. A slow rhythmic four-beat develops uh, with the mandol and clarinet working together again here. Uh, the bass clarinet then blows out some of these uh, really cool double-time 16th note figures uh, over... Um, arpeggios and strumming on the mandol uh, is really working up uh, to kind of a frenzy here. The drums and bass kick in at the double time and there's a new uh, melody on the mandol and clarinet. Then there's a slower transition section before more of the fast melody again. Then it breaks back into the slower tempo and the clarinet explores some kind of independent lines before the tune comes to a close. Uh, again, lots of things happening, turns on a dime uh, very interesting uh, changes. Three, we've got an interesting title, Savage Butterfly. Uh, <laughs> Seems like a oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. Uh, here the mandol plays a, a chord and works into some rapid figures in free time uh, as the bass and bass clarinet supply some longer tones. Uh, cymbals set out a tempo and the bass adds a bottom riff, which gradually builds into a modal melody shared by the clarinet and mandol with some rhythmic breaks. Uh, Munier easily switches register on the bass clarinet, depending on the line. He's, <laughs> you know, be really high and then, you know, down low. Uh, and it, he seems to be uh, uh, very agile on that. Uh, a new fast six, or it depends how you count this, or three beat groove uh, develops uh, on this one with the clarinet soling and uh, Sharif adding some vocalizations uh, in there too. Uh, there's a cool bass line for the bass clarinet and bass to work together, and then Sharif joins in on top of it. Uh, they all drop out and uh, let Yunker work on some cool drum beats for a while. Then they build back in 
with some stop time phrases over the drums with a final line with the bass clarinet digging down really low. <laughs> Whenever you have bass clarinet, you want to hear that kind of yeah. chest resonating register and you get to hear that here a bit. Uh, now we're going to get Sharif doing some vocals on the appropriate titled for Call of the Night. Uh, the bass starts this one out with some modal lines uh, that feature intervals Get some sparse cymbals and mandol uh, to fill uh, in just before Sharif adds the vocals. The beat is slow, kind of like a dirge, and Sharif's vocal have a very mournful quality. Uh, he's very uh, kind of soulful voice. Uh, he adds nice kind of uh, tremolo figures on the mandol and spots, and uh, Borsos bass carries most of the beat uh, with just kind of Tom accents from Junker. Uh, so, yeah, the voice is understated, but very appealing. I liked yeah. it right away. I was like, wow, you know, yeah. Uh, I don't know what, I don't know what he's singing about, but he drew yeah. me in, you know, uh, five, uh, Shiroko. So it starts with a tricky Mandel figures, uh, and then a fast six beat rhythm feel develops, uh, with the others joining in. Uh, the melody develops with stops for alternating mandol and bass clarinet uh, in, inside of it. Uh, the rhythm dissolves for some free time uh, mandol modal jamming. And then drums add some uh, light fills. Uh, and a new slow four beat emerges with a bass clarinet melody. Uh, fast mandol triplets and subdividing in the bass transforms the beat into the fast six again. And it charges to the end. Um, Six, uh, Autumn Occidental. This is kind of a slow loping theme with bass clarinet and mandol to start it out. Uh, bowed bass adds kind of thickness below that. Then on a repeat, a slow beat emerges with kind of a bass heartbeat feel and drum toms. And the bass clarinet and uh, a nice uh, tremolo figure in the mandol carry the melody. There's a break and then the mandol comes in with repeated fast figures that uh, wouldn't sound out of place in like a heavy metal band <laughs> over a <laughs> syncopated beat. You get that kind of intensity uh, to this line. Right. Um, the bass clarinet solos and lets out some cries over the new pattern, uh, eventually joins in the fast figure with the mandol before a quick slow change up and then a fast ending. Uh, always keeping you on your toes in this music. Yeah. I also want to say, it's funny that you use, I actually wrote the word, uh, this piece lopes forward slowly. You even use the word loping yeah, too. Loping, it's really yeah. funny how we heard that mm -hmm. rhythm is loping. Mm. Yeah, it's, just yeah, like the a image, technical yeah. word, maybe. Loping. <laughs> Track seven is A True Lie. Uh, this seems to follow a meter of seven beats and then six. Figure that one out. It took me a yeah, while to figure out what was tough, going on. Tough, See if you could count it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The mandol and drum toms uh, start it, and then the bass clarinet joins in, and the volume kicks up. There's a middle section to the melody of first descending and then ascending lines. Then the mandol has some muted kind of sitar-like plucking. Uh, he's muting the strings. It really changes the tonal quality. Uh, on the original pattern, with high notes on the bass clarinet over some plinky kind of percussion. Then a new groove comes in over some evil sounding bowed bass uh, <laughs> and they lay the original patterns back over it until the end. Uh, so again, it's a lot of weird things going on, but they all sound very cool. Um, yeah. But I don't know, seven beats, then six. Uh, 
<laughs> it doesn't happen very often yeah. uh, in Western music. Uh, track eight, uh, Virgul. Virgul, which Virgul. means a comma yeah. in French. In French. Yeah. Uh, this one starts with a backbeat groove on the drums. Uh, bass clarinet and mandol play a tricky syncopated and angular line in unison over the top. Uh, this piece has more of a major key tonality to it uh, than the other uh, compositions. The mandolin and clarinet trade off some doodling and tremolo playing over the groove. It turns more minor and uh, modally in uh, kind of approach as they improvise simultaneously for a bit before a new modal version of the angular theme returns and then changes back to the original tonality feel for a final time through. Uh, so kind of a, a different harmonic uh, feelings and implications on this one. Kind of wondering about that title comma too, if they're, they're like pauses. Yeah. Yeah. He, I wonder why he called it that. It mm. kind of reminds me of when I, would, I had this uh, teacher once who uh, explained how you could change the meaning of a sentence just by placing a comma in it. And we see a lot uh, of these on the internet now, but right, uh, he gave the, right. he gave the expression like the sentence, what's that in the road ahead? And then he put, what's that in the road, comma, ahead. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. I never forgot that lesson. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It could be those commas are where these uh, sort of modes uh, change in the I'd piece. I'd like to know. Maybe yeah. they'll write to us. Because some, sometimes these guys write to us. It'd be cool. Yeah. Let okay. us know. Yeah. If you let listen. us know. Let us know yeah. how my... Analysis is off base. Yeah, <laughs> these rhythms. Yeah. <laughs> and so track nine, uh, Amaret Eriam. Yeah, I'm not going to try to say that for you. Yeah, all right. We'll <laughs> okay. leave it be. Uh, this one's got a slow yeah. three-beat figure uh, that's introduced. I don't know. What is it? It sounds like a kalimba to me. Yeah, th uh, I said thumb piano, yeah, which is that's a kalimba. kalimba. That's the official yeah. name for a um, and kalimba. Kalimba is the official name for that. An ostinato bass line uh, is laid down. Uh, the mandol comes in on top with lots of cool modal jamming going on here. Yeah. Uh, Sharif sings the yearning melody that has, uh, they're almost like little appoggiatura figures, you know, the, ah, 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 the descending right, right. go down. Of, uh, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, very cool. Resolving the chord, kind of. Yeah. Bass clarinet joins in with the mandol between the phrases. Uh, then the bass gets to jam out over some uh, light hand tapping percussion and the mandol and clarinet join in underneath with a riff uh, the bass clarinet and mandol work into an energetic unison angular line that carries the energy to the end. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is a really engaging recording. It's got an intriguing blend of instruments. The modes and rhythmic meters keep you interested in trying to figure out what's happening. And then as soon as you think you've got uh, what's going on, it's in a different direction. So there's a lot of spontaneity, uh, freshness to it. Uh, and Sharif's uh, vocals add some unique uh, character in some spots. Uh, I found uh, something different, uh, kind of in between worlds. It has a jazzy spirit, but uh, also uh, this uh, unique instrumentation, uh, African modes going on here. It's intriguing. Uh, give it a listen. Yeah, I found this um, appealing like all the way through. And uh, I mean, what more can you ask for? You have um, well the, these um, you know unique sounding instruments that you usually don't hear if you live in the West like us. Well, yeah. we, well we live in Japan, but I mean, you know, we you know we were familiar with uh, 
Western instruments. And and then there's a bass clarinet too. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. more can you ask for? Um, also, you have the changing rhythms to keep your intellect active. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really, this album hits the whole body. Fantastic recorded sound, I thought, too. I thought all the this, the uh, instruments came out yeah. with a really rich tone. Um, so just beautiful sound from the players and the uh, the mics really picked them up well. The engineer um, did well on yeah. this. This is actually, um, you know, of all the things you've... Uh, talked about so far this year this is the the second one i'm actually going to buy the other one was the bill o'connell one. Oh yeah so i got the, yeah. yeah so this, these okay. are my two purchasers from this year i really like this one a lot right yeah see that uh mr sharif you've sold you've at least sold one new record yeah, well, it's the, already, yeah he's again. already got the money for it apparently yeah. he's already bought it but i don't okay, have it great. yet it's, it hasn't been shipped yeah i like this one <laughs> i i might add this one to my collection too as I well as the next recording, this one uh, I uh, just saw on a list, and uh, yeah, I really I liked I like all this. three of these. By the way, oh, okay. that you picked this week, so Good. but I don't know if I'm going to get all three of them. I got to see. So we're going to take that, uh, not the river boat, but the Mediterranean boat, and we're going to sail it uh, all the way over to the end of the Mediterranean to Israel. Now we've had some Israeli jazz or jazz via. Israel on the podcast before. We had the uh, jazz pianist Roy Moore uh, last year, uh, who's now based in New York, uh, but he had a really nice uh, recording last uh, year. And uh, we also had uh, the bassist, uh, Tel Aviv-based bassist, Shea Hazan. Yeah, I remember uh, that. And yeah. uh, that was kind of a cool, groovy... Uh, um, and so now we've got uh, another uh, Israeli... Uh, musician and uh, this is a debut album and for that it's quite impressive uh, called Waking the Heart on Ubuntu which features a lot of up and coming uh, artists uh, and as a record label and this is Nadav Berkovitz and uh, so as I said this is his debut and he's uh, got a lot of musical influences uh, from Obvious, a straight-ahead jazz music, two Middle Eastern and sort of uh, Northern African rhythms, but also uh, Afro-Cuban music. Uh, and apparently, uh, looking over his uh, bio, he uh, made a trip to Cuba uh, to sort of expose himself to that musical environment. And uh, on this recording here, he's got some of the best uh, Israeli jazz musicians uh, joining in with him. And especially, I uh, was impressed by the uh, trumpeter who I've heard before, Itamar Borokov, uh, fabulous trumpet sound. Uh, on tenor sax, we've got Yuval Drabkin. Uh, we've got guitar on two tracks, Omri Borg-Giora. Uh, on bass, Oz Yehile. And drums, Shai Yuval. And all, all original compositions by Berkowitz. So, uh, yeah, and nice. they're all really impressive as yeah, well. I kinda, they're all really good. Really sunk into all of these. This yeah. is, I'm kind of not sure if I want this one or not. I liked it, though, a lot. Yeah, I'm going to pick this one up. I, I really liked uh, the overall vibe and uh, creative nature on this album. So the first yeah. tune is called The Dream. Uh, this starts out with uh, rolling kind of piano chords and a reverby guitar notes uh, that are joined by some uh, drums and bass tones. And uh, then uh, Berkowitz works into 
this kind of uh, C minor uh, six eight chord progression. Uh, it really sets an atmosphere uh, for this tune. Uh, Saxon trumpet blows some phrases uh, before starting in on the intriguing minor melody uh, that develops here. Uh, Yuval adds uh, nice cymbals in the background. They go around the tune once again. Uh, the pattern moves into a tenor sax solo by Drabkin. Uh, he works in and out of the modes uh, implied by the minor changes, creates more uh, tension with some shrieking notes uh, that are really cool. The melody has a nice uh, cadence that turns around at the end. So it, it gets you sort of uh, into this kind of modal uh, kind of trance, but then uh, the turnaround uh, brings you back uh, in a, into more... Uh, uh, regular tonality with it. Um, the time stops uh, and Berkowitz keeps a wash of sound going uh, with some drums behind uh, for Borkov to start blowing a rubato solo. Uh, the, his tone is really great here. It's fat and thick. Uh, it's very modal uh, based improvisation and it sounds like a desert cry. Uh, mm. you, know, you can imagine it's not even a, a trumpet. Uh, here. Uh, the beat reemerges as Borokov finishes uh, his solo. Uh, Dior is up next on guitar. He's got a really fat toned echoey uh, thing going on uh, with his guitar that sounds cool and he has a really uh, melodic solo here. And then they all join in for a melody restatement and uh, repeat it to finish up with some free blowing uh, at the end uh, as they wrap it up. So a uh, nice opening track that sort of sets the mood for this album. Uh, track two is Ross, and this is a uh, Borokov feature uh, on his trumpet. It starts out with a breathy, warm modal call over, again, rolling slow piano chords. A slow rubato melody is played by the trumpet and bass, and uh, next by the piano and bass. The trumpet and piano take it in unison next for an interesting trade-off as it picks up a beat in three and gets faster uh, from the addition of drums. Borkov solos keeping the modal character in his melodic lines and runs, and uh, Berkowitz takes a solo next. Uh, he focuses on rhythmic figures and chiming notes. It works into a, a new repeating rising progression of chords, and then things settle down and get quiet uh, for Borkov to blow a new melody. Then the beat uh, gets some syncopation and then slows for some final notes uh, from Borokov over the chords. Uh, so nice trumpet feature here. Uh, three, <clears throat> España. So here we're going to get some different influences. Uh, starts with an ostinato bass line uh, with motion. Uh, it gets joined by uh, tight drums and syncopated chords by Berkowitz. He handles the melody as well as uh, the chordal things, because this is just a trio work here. Uh, it's got a Spanish feel, as suggested by the title. Um, uh, we get some tasty bass work between the piano phrases, and uh, Yuval keeps things uh, interesting moving around the drum set. Uh, Berkowitz shows off some more uh, here uh, with some of his Cuban influences. Um, he has some really driving chords and rhythms, but also softer lines uh, that have a nice touch for contrast. Uh, Yehile gets a busy but tasty rhythmic bass solo. Uh, someone shouts out their approval <laughs> uh, during it, so <laughs> it's, uh, uh, 
they're having fun here. Uh, Yuval has a drum solo next, showing some power and dexterity. And then Berkowitz brings in the chord vamp as Yuval continues uh, as a segue back to the melody. They play around a repeating phrase uh, with some drum gaps for fun at the end. So here you can see his uh, influence with some uh, Cuban and uh, Spanish themes. Track four is a song for Avi. It's a soft piano intro. Uh, Gior is back with some crying tones on guitar. A medium tempo beat uh, gets formed, and then the guitar takes the melody. The rhythm has a feeling of uh, pushing ahead throughout the tune. It quiets down for the start of a guitar solo. Uh, he stitches together rising and falling lines with some fast 16th note licks, and the band brings up the intensity as he goes on. Berkowitz solos next. He keeps it rhythmic here as well, focusing on intervals in the solo and works up to some nice percussive chords. Then a kind of new perpetual melodic line develops in unison in the piano and guitar as the drums drop out for a little bit. Then everyone comes back in, the beat builds, and they push that line into a new final section that settles out quietly with some spacey guitar and piano tones. Uh, then we've got uh, track five, uh, Eurydice, who I guess was the wife of Orpheus, right? Yeah. Um, this uh, starts with a slow sequence of four chords on piano for an intro. Uh, it's added to by bass and light percussion. Trapkin comes in with some breezy sax on the melody, and then uh, Berkowitz plays uh, some chords here after that. The sax improvises over that and creates a light flowing effect uh, until Drabkin digs in and gets more intense in attack and uh, volume, working up to some double-time figures. Berkowitz gets a solo here, and the drums and rhythm take up a more swinging rhythm sometimes, uh, switching up with him when he plays uh, cross rhythms there. Uh, so it's nice interplay going on. Drabkin comes back uh, with the airy, gentle melody as they return to the original tempo and rhythmic feel. Things work up in intensity again, and the swinging feel uh, and Drab can get some more intense soloing space before things quiet down and go out on a kind of a bluesy vamp to the end of the tune. Uh, track six ends off. So slow, spaced out world piano chords make the intro with some cymbal textures and drums added. Uh, Berkowitz gets a new rhythm going to start the main tune. Uh, the drums play a subdivided beat and the bass has a syncopated two beat feel over which Berkowitz works out rhythmic phrases and accented chords. Mid-tune, they work up into a sequence of rhythmic patterns and then some minor modal scales. Uh, the drums and bass drop out for a bit. Well, Berkowitz comes up with a new sequence of rhythmic figures uh, that they join back in on and then build up to the final section, which slows and gets quieter, uh, while the piano adds some higher register notes and some final meaty chords. Uh, and then track seven is called Lament. Uh, this has a bass gliss slide up into a halting alternating rhythm of uh, bass and piano chords. Uh, Yuval then gets some bluesy soloing time on bass. Uh, Drabkin joins in on tenor for the bluesy melody. Uh, there's a nice chord progression in the final section that breaks up the sort of just simple bluesy alternation. The chords modulate, and then Drabkin gets a solo that he starts kind of reserved uh, 
uh, with, but gets a lot of sexy bluesy licks in there. Uh, Berkowitz solos next, and he plays a nice mix of bluesy ideas, some lightly touched phrases, uh, and then some more powerful chords. It's a nice contrast. Drapkin joins back in for a go-around on the melody again. He gets some more blowing in, and the repeated chords continue for a bit while they uh, wrap it up. Uh, so that's it, seven tracks. Uh, I enjoyed this recording a lot. Uh, Berkowitz pulls off a lot here for a debut recording. The tunes are interesting and attractive. Um, he mostly fits into, you know, the modern jazz sound that's, uh, you know, out there now. But he includes enough of these sort of uh, Middle Eastern uh, and other kind of musical modal influences. And then the Spanish-Cuban uh, kind of ideas to give just that extra bit of uh, international flavor and uniqueness to the music. Uh, Borkov's trumpet and uh, soloing ideas add a lot to the tunes he plays on. Uh, so I thought it's an intriguing mix, uh, nice balance, good original compositions. I'm uh, definitely going to be looking for whatever Berkowitz comes up with uh, next uh, if this is his start point uh, on recordings, I can only see more interesting things coming out in the future. Yeah, this was uh, really impressive. The uh, the arrangements arrangements are really just expanded. Into yeah, they're a really big lush. Kinda, yeah, yeah, they're lush, and uh, they all kind of sort of start with this kind of haze where everybody's sort of doing his own thing, like the universe is sort of being created, mm. and then suddenly, bang! It's like into the uh, yeah into the theme. I enjoyed that. Also, towards the end, um, you didn't mention this, but there are some really tricky uh, uh, time signatures uh, in these. Like, I, I, I think mm -hmm. Eurydice had an odd one. I was th I was hearing. F I think that was the one uh, that was five, or I was I could five, yeah. Yeah, and then Ensof had like five, four, or seven, eight. I couldn't really tell, but mm. there was there was some sort of dropping off, sort of of the right. sort of feeling that I that really kind of drew me in. I, I liked that a lot too. There, there's a lot of detail on mm -hmm. this record, and it, it it sounds like it would uh, repay repeated listening. Um, unfortunately, it looks like so as you were talking, I looked this up, and it looks like we're not going to be getting this on CD because there isn't one. It's only a a sound oh, wait. file you know where is there no i actually we'll, we'll let uh we'll let uh nadav know uh about this podcast but i i noticed him on facebook he's opening up a big box of these cds so oh really so they're yeah. gonna put them out because they're not, they so. don't seem to be available now oh, okay wow did you get the date of the post uh no well check it out after this podcast yeah i would we'll like a, a cd of so this nadav, if, you, one. if you check out this uh, podcast we're interested in cds yeah we're very much a hard copy people yeah. you can't yeah. take that away from me as the song says right yeah oh i also yeah. want to mention you know the the piece of eurydice you said uh he's orpheus's wife well the story goes yeah she would have been Orpheus's wife, if she hadn't died the day of her wedding. Oh, that's right. Yeah, by being yeah. bitten by a serpent. serpent and uh, yeah. as as those of us um, who have heard every frigging operatic setting of that story, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> it's been right. made into an opera many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Of course, then, so it, and that happens. You don't have to pay alimony in the future. So. You know. Yeah, but then you have to. He went into Hades to get her back, and he uh. actually. 
gets her back and then he looks at her and she disappears again and then he gets torn apart by wild women on a mountainside <laughs> so it wasn't I don't know if it was worth it I don't know probably not yeah probably not he should have just done a podcast like us he would have been happier yeah yeah there you go or, or started a concert career he was apparently a really good player <laughs> alright we started out in uh, River Boat and uh, yeah Algeria yeah. go across the Mediterranean to Israel. And now we're going to go back with uh, someone who came from Israel, but uh, has been in uh, New York for a while uh, because uh, he's one of the top uh, guitarists out there. Uh, and actually, this album is not called Riverboat, but Riverside. Yeah. And it's uh, on the outside in music label. And this is... Uh, Aznoy. Yeah. Cool One name. wonders if it's the Hudson or the East. Yeah. Uh, so, Aznoy, guitarist extraordinaire. Uh, and uh, here we've got an uh, interesting trio. This album has an interesting story. We've got uh, Ray Marchka on uh, drums, um, who is uh, kind of a, a Broadway uh, playing musician, working mm -hmm. musician, a session player. And we've got the uh, German-Nigerian uh, bassist Ugona Akegwo, uh, who played with uh, Jackie Terrison, and I know him very well uh, from his work with uh, Tom Harrell, the great trumpeter. Uh, and I have, have every Tom Harrell recording that's ever been made, and he plays on a, a number of those. Uh, but uh, Noy himself was uh, born in Israel, uh, and he started his musical career at a really young age, uh, playing all kinds of music, jazz, blues, pop, rock. Uh, and he was, you know, by his teenage years, he was uh, making it uh, with uh, top pros in Israel, became one of the uh, best studio players there in his t early 20s. And uh, then he came to New York uh, in around 1996 and uh, started... Uh, big impact on the uh, music scene there. Uh, I think my image of uh, his playing on the recordings I've heard is more of a kind of a fusion, you know, style uh, with a harder kind of rock-influenced uh, sound. Um, but uh, here, uh, he's working with at least jazz standard material, although what he's going to uh, take out of that is a little bit different. So, um, so the title here, uh, Riverside, uh, refers to uh, the genesis for this recording. So like other musicians during the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, gigs were shut down. Uh, there was no playing indoors, live venues. And uh, so these other guys, uh, Akego and uh, Mochika, uh, all live in his neighborhood. And so they started going down by the Hudson River uh, to jam out. Uh, in the park <laughs> together. Mm. And uh, these are some of the tunes that they uh, were working on, uh, just playing out in the park. And uh, that became kind of uh, inspiration uh, to record them uh, all together. And as I said, uh, we've got real jazz standards here, but you're going to hear them uh, in a kind of unique way and with a little bit of uh, twist here. So we're going to start out with uh, all the things you are. Uh, here, uh, Noit plays around with the melody for an introduction, uh, almost in tempo, uh, with some improvised movements. Uh, on the unresolved chord, 
then the bass and drums come in and everyone's together. Noi works uh, around the melody again uh, while you hear some nice string sounds from Akigwo's bass and tight brushwork from Marchika. I really like Marchika's drumming on this. Uh, it's uh, yeah, all the way uh, really through, tight. really. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, on the whole groove. album. He gets I good mean, grooves, really. Yeah, really good yeah. grooves. Uh, there's a break before Noi is off on a fluid solo. Uh, other than endless melodic phrases, he's another one of these guys who's never going to run out of ideas. Uh, he also works in some technically crazy ideas. Uh, I even wrote down <laughs> times at things I couldn't figure out what. <laughs> like, listen at two minutes and five seconds, guitar players. Uh, what yeah. is that? Uh, I don't know. That's very cool. Mm. Um, he finishes off the last time around, uh, adding chords back into the melody uh, before he passes it off to uh, Akigwo for a rhythmic and woody uh, sounding bass solo. Noi comes back in with some pitch play, uh, some little bending things there. Uh, start trading off eights with Marchika. And I like Marchika's light and detailed textures. Uh, they have a go around the melody again, and the vamp out is cool uh, with Noi doubling up on the bass and alternating chords, and they st stretch out the time uh, yeah. Slow it down uh, together, which is not an uh, easy thing to do. Uh, but uh, I said that it, it uh, unwinds like a clock spring. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah it just, it's what it sounds like. The time gets pulled out. Well, it is cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, track two, Anthropology, the Charlie Parker tune. And we get a little drum intro, and uh, then Noi uh, bops through the Charlie Parker melody here. He swings uh, through this uh, solo. Uh, adding 16th note phrases, never losing the groove. Uh, sometimes he adds chords and spots, and his ending uh, is quite unexpected. Uh, <laughs> you have to listen to what he does there. Yeah, it's, it's very <laughs> abrupt. Tone. Yeah, yeah uh, before yeah. Marchika gets a solo, uh, where you can always feel the heavy groove. Uh, when he solos, you know, you're still going to have the groove going uh, on any of this uh, album. And then they have a romp through the head again. Uh, now we're going to get some creative uh, arrangements of things. Uh, three, uh, the old tune, Have You Met Miss Jones? Uh, here it gets a light kind of 6-8 swing feel. Uh, unusual treatment. Uh, Noi picks out uh, great melodic lines. He's having fun with the time, uh, switching up with kind of even figures, you know, evenly played and not swinging, and then back into swing feel and spots. Uh, Akigwo shows off his melodic ideas in another good bass solo, and then Noi trades off with Marchika before they go around the tune and end up on a repeated and slowing riff. Um, four is another kind of transformed uh, tune, uh, Billy's Bounce. Uh, it's not usually a ballad, but here it is, and it gets kind of a country swing feel to it. Never heard it like this before. Uh, Noi has some fun surprises with the harmony and uh, plays a lot of shimmering chords. Uh, it gets into a slow bluesy groove uh, with Noi pulling out bluesy licks and trills and then some contrasting cool jazzy phrases. Uh, he lays, he gets some lazy timed stretched out chords and a unique cadenza uh, at the end. Uh, there's too much going on on this one to describe it all, but it's very tasty. Uh, reinterpretation of uh, this tune. Um, track five, it's called Riverside Blues. I guess this is a tune they just uh, composed uh, while they were jamming uh, by the river. It's a rock shuffle. Uh, it's a lot of fun. 
Uh, Akigwa lays down a great thick bass line. Uh, Noi shows off lots of bluesy licks, and <laughs> there's this really cool screaming chord uh, <laughs> right at one of his earlier uh, go-arounds. Uh, he works into some blazing double-time bluesy phrases and rhythmic interval passages, and it's all child play uh, to him. Is uh, just uh, any tempo anything. He never loses the groove in his playing. Uh, Okigwa has a steady bass solo as well uh, before they give the melody one more shot. Uh, the next tune is called 6-8 Lunch Break. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good title. Yeah, this is just a little short uh, solo feature for Machika on drums. And here again, he shows he can keep a groove going while doing inventive things uh, around the drum set. Uh, so this one particularly has some tasty tom work on the set while well, he keeps that nice groove uh, going on. Uh, <laughs> track seven. Uh, this one uh, is kind of interesting. Uh, it's uh, the old standard out of nowhere. You know, you came along out of nowhere. Uh, Noise starts this out with an original riff idea. You'll have no idea that what the tune is when you hear this. But it, I listened to this, and it sounds kind of like um, like a a Spanish ZZ Top riff. I don't know if that makes huh. any sense to you, but listen to it. You'll see what I mean. Uh, it's got that you know Spanish two chord thing, and um, and uh, but it it has the tonality of like a of a this kind of ZZ Top thing before it segues into the melody. Now, if you start counting at the original riff, you'll also realize what's been transformed in this song too, and somehow. They play it as if it's it's always been this way, but it sounds a little bit loose and different because it's swinging, but it's in five four instead of four four. So I thought those, yeah, yeah, it's really kind of you know, it's it's really hard to take a melody odd. that's in one meter and then change it into a, another meter, but still have it sound you know completely recognizable. Uh, it doesn't seem to bother Noi. He's got en- enough ideas to fill that extra beat. And keep the swing feeling go, going too. But that's kind of creative uh, to stretch something out like that. Uh, okay, Gua gets a solo here too. Uh, and then they hit the melody again at the end. So a nice transformation of time signatures on this one. Uh, track eight, Donna Lee. Uh, big drum beat intro on this one. And Noi gets to show off his blazing chops on this tune. Uh, Akego drops on uh, drops out on some sections of the melody uh, as Noi flies through his lines. Uh, listen to the tightness of their interplay when they uh, join his rhythmic uh, kind of staggering. Uh, like right at a minute and forty three seconds, um, uh, he's going to vary up the rhythm and and the drum and bass are instantly there with him. I don't think this is kind of a rehearsed thing, you know. It comes from playing together and listening. Uh, so a real great interplay and tightness in uh, this trio. Uh, Machiko gets a drum solo before Noi has another rip through the melody here. Let me get uh, track nine. This could be the start of something big. This, this might be Steve Allen tune. I'm not sure. So I used to play this in big band, you know, back when I was young. Uh, this is kind of a standard tune uh medium fast swing treatment of this one that uh, allows for some nice rhythmic play and hesitation with the chords uh during the familiar melody no it keeps a lot of the melody in his solo on this one it includes a lot of rhythmic variations as well the rhythmic change up at the end of his solo is particularly very cool 
Okay, Guo has a solo here that's nicely measured out with melodic phrases. They go around the melody again, and Noi trades off with Machika. Uh, listen to the exchange Noi does at about uh, 4.45, uh, 4 minutes, 45 seconds, working in this wailing blues riff. You're never going to hear a blues riff like that on this tune again. <laughs> yeah, it's just out of nowhere. Uh, and yeah. then we finish off with... Uh, Track 10, Sunny. This is that old uh, Bobby Hebb R&B tune, 1966, uh, that just lends itself uh, to a funky groove. And uh, they go around it uh, twice with noise spicing it up uh, on the second time. Uh, and then uh, he launches into some blazing lines to start his solo. Uh, he eases off a little bit for some melodic lines uh, in between laying down these uh, really incredible figures in all directions uh, with some machine gun-like repeated notes, uh, crazy outside licks, and rapid strums to finish off. Well, you know what? If I could play guitar as well as this, I'd show off too. <laughs> so yeah, he's just right. having a lot of fun here. It's a great uh, jamming tune uh, to finish out uh, the set. So this is a fun album of standards that are pushed and pulled in fun and quirky, creative ways. Uh, great interplay between the trio. Uh, Noi shows off his jazzier side here, but he doesn't let you forget that he can rock out, uh, you know, and uh, his monster chops uh, can cook up anything he wants to do. Uh, unlimited uh, technical ability, but he always makes sure that it tastes good whatever he oh, yeah. fires up. So a uh, really fun album. Any uh, guitar players, uh, you know, chop guys, listen to this guy play. Uh, it does very just impressive. taste good, but he's yeah. got, there's a lot on the uh, grill there. He's, yeah, there's a lot he, Again, the like you said, there's a lot, there are a lot of ideas. I just love that when musicians can do that, um, yeah. either in a classical composition or especially in jazz when it's just happening, like, you know, off the cuff and there's just this idea after idea. It's just amazing to me. Well, yeah, you know this what? This album I, is like that. I have to say, you know, Unfortunately, um, mm. in the guitar world, there are yeah. a lot of really big names that get thrown around of these guitar players. And a lot of their music, when I listen to it, it's a one <laughs> and done. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm glad you performed your gymnastic exercises. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, a, a little bit of, uh, well, I don't want to use the word because... We have a clean uh, podcast. But let's oh, say yeah. it's a self-stimulation exercise on the yeah, fretboard. That, our, that, that yeah. our new logo might uh, inspire, <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, I hope not. I hope not. But uh, uh, what I like is uh, <laughs> what I could hear uh, a great a great player who has got chops but never wastes them and everything is you know really tasty yeah, and good. Fantastic, uh, yeah. Fantastic, yeah. Listen to this guy, guitarist. Yeah, and yeah check this out. Pick, pick out, uh, get, get some... Uh, ideas there yeah yeah so uh good romp and uh you know, a little bit uh different jazz journey this week but that's always good to do to uh, i, I enjoyed this particular jazz journey a lot really yeah. all three of these records I, now i'm yeah. thinking i kind of want all three of them but i don't, I don't know let's we'll see yeah. we're early in the year yet we're just getting we're started early in the so. year yeah. yeah anyway exactly uh so this has been episode 51 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, I'm sure that new neon logo is glowing in your retina, so uh, be yeah. sure to uh, check that out. And as I said, uh, please do like and subscribe on whatever 
uh, service or platform you listen to us on. If you'd like to contact us with any comments or feedback, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, just drop us an email at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or come over to our new kind of under construction Facebook page. That's also yeah. Adult Music Podcast, uh, just one word. Uh, you can find us there. If you want to leave a comment, uh, you can also listen to the Podbean episodes there. Yeah, uh, and you can see you can see a picture of us too. Yeah. That, that's me in the green turtleneck on the left, by the way. It's Mike on Mike. the left. Mike on the left. I'm the on the right turtleneck. with the full glass of whiskey. Uh, well, we both have whiskey. Yeah, we both have whiskey. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was that was our first anniversary. That picture was taken at our first anniversary episode. That's right. First it was, it was an enjoyable uh, occasion, I have to say. Yeah. So yeah. thank us again to Fast Signs for our new logo and uh, yeah, coming business you. cards. We're somebody now. Yeah. Thank yeah, you my, to my brother, Richard Vizzuto. Thanks, Richard. And to Ephraim Aquino for the design, the fantastic design. Looking forward to getting those. That'd those business great. cards would be cool. It'd just kind of hang around. Hey, yeah. I do a podcast and uh, nobody cares. I think uh, somebody said um, that when you start a podcast, like all your other qualifications, like to do work, just kind of disappear because nobody wants you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. This is all we got left. <laughs> no. This is good therapy, anyway, too, from the rest of the it world. It is good therapy, I guess. Uh, yeah. Not really. I, I don't, can't really just... Well, we could whinge and complain about things, but it just kind of makes that me happy help. just listening to all this, this music is, all the time. Listen to good, good music. What are we going to yeah. listen to next week? Well, if you want to find out tomorrow, go over to Deezer and check out the uh, podcast playlist for episode 52, where you can get all of the content one week early and start listening to it and uh, as we will from tomorrow. So yeah. until next week, have a good week, and we'll see you again for episode 52.